Dave Grohl or John Bonham? Hmm, that's a tough call to make. So I'm going to make up my own answer for this one and say their baby. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Self-Recording Band Podcast, the show where we help you make exciting records on your own, wherever you are, DIY style. Let's go. Hello and welcome to the Self-Recording Band Podcast. I am your host, Benedict Hein. And today I'm joined by the one and only Mike Robinson. Mike is an engineer, producer, musician, and content creator from West Tennessee, United States. Um, he's built a pretty cool resource for Reaper users primarily. It's a YouTube channel called Let's Talk About Reaper. And also, if, I'm, if my information is correct, it's also a Discord server, like the unofficial Reaper users group on Discord. And... Right. From like people in our audience, uh, they've requested you, Mike, a couple of times now. You were one of the guests that they definitely wanted to have on the podcast because we have a lot of Reaper users in our audience. So I'm really, really happy and grateful for you taking the time. I really appreciate that, though. So thank you for coming on to this podcast. And uh, let's thanks talk about for having Reaper. me. And I am uh, I am absolutely flattered and overwhelmed that anybody even asked for me. So <laughs> thanks for having me here today. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. I've asked a couple of times like who I, who we should interview. We should, I wanted to bring more people onto the podcast uh, instead of just doing our episodes. And yeah, you were the one of the 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 most requested people actually. And I think this is. Also, I mean, this is due to the fact that you're a phenomenal teacher, I believe, but also due to the fact that a lot of self-recording bands and artists happen to use Reaper. And the thing is, my co-host and I, we don't use Reaper. I've, I've tried it. I have it on my computer, but I don't know a lot about it. So I'm really, really glad that you came on to teach us a few things about it, maybe. because yeah, We'll that's... make a convert out of you yet. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see we'll see yeah so that's that's uh that's hopefully one of these and, and i'm pretty sure it will be one of these episodes where i can just just learn a lot about a, a tool that i i haven't used much so my first question to you mike would be why was reaper the daw that you that you used or like first of all did you start with reaper or did you come from a completely different background and then happen to discover reaper and transitioned um, that depends on who you ask. The truth is Reaper is probably my third DAW. Okay. But usually when I'm asked that question, I just like to skip the other two and say that I started with Reaper. So let's get into the true story. Um, <laughs> I believe if I recall, my first DAW was, what's it called, Intrack Studio, which I found out recently is still around. It's by a company called either FastSoft or FASoft. And I liked it. Quite frankly, if I recall, it was very similar in layout and function to Reaper. But okay. this was back in the 486 days, and I didn't have much computing power. I didn't really know what I was doing. was was just dabbling. Um, after okay. that, I tried, uh, what was it called? It's now Adobe Audition, but before that was called Cool, cool Edit Pro. Those of you who have used it remember the Barbershop Quartet theme song that would play every time you opened it up. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I spent maybe about three and a half to five minutes in Cubase and finally settled on Reaper. And All right. Uh, well, uh, no, I missed one. I actually did dabble in FL Studio for a short time as well. Oh, really? There are several that I've tried for like maybe a day or two, but I kind of don't count them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. Did you have like any any sort of analog background, or did you did you have the the classical? I started with a four track kind of thing. Um, was that a yeah, thing? Exactly. I have, let's see, no proper studio experience whatsoever. The recording that I had before using Reaper and uh, computer assisted recording was strictly done on either a four-track tape or 
I don't know if you recall. I'm, I'm not sure your age. I'll be 46 this year, so I'm kind of right at death's door. But <laughs> back when I was in elementary school, they would show film strips uh, for educational purposes and would have a little tape recorder to play the sound along with it. The kind that had the pull-out handle. I'm sure you're probably familiar with them. Those yep. make great recording medium for bands. If you put it in the right corner and put enough blankets on it to keep it from overdriving the little microphone, you can get some pretty fantastic recordings by just getting the sound levels right in the room. But awesome. that was where I got my real start was with a little tape player. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, so you were actually a self-recording band too in the beginning. Like you started recording your Before own bands. Before it was cool. <laughs> Before it was cool. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So, and and uh, did you, what, what type of music did you make or do you make with your band? Like, what's, what's your musical background? Um, I grew up playing in punk and metal bands. So, that you know, when most of the people around me were into R&B or pop or what have you, I was into Iron Maiden and Megadeth and Metallica and, well, that's more on the rock side of things. On the punk side of things, bands like Crimp Shrine, Black Flag, Misfits, which are still favorites of mine. Awesome, awesome. That's uh, definitely bands I'm very familiar with because I'm come from a punk rock and hardcore background myself. So, so that's really cool. And I think it's even more interesting to hear that you've tried FL Studio once because to me, I mean, I might be completely wrong, but to me, FL Studio was always one of those like hip hop, pop, sort of electronic types of DAWs, like or at least a lot of people in these genres use it. I've I've not seen many rock people use FL Studio, so it's kind of interesting that you tried that first. I think I tend to agree with that assessment, really, is, is it does seem more geared towards that. I am a firm believer that you can do just about anything with just about any DAW. It's just a matter of which one suits your workflow best, because at the end of the day, a tool is a tool, and me as a consumer very seldom would question, say, a construction worker as to, you know, I bet you would do a better job if you used this hammer or this screwdriver. I just trust them to do their work with whatever tools they choose. Yeah, that, that to totally agree with that. Couldn't agree more. Awesome. So, okay, so you were in a band. You were recording yourself with a tape recorder, and then you moved on to four tracks and computers and all of that. Did you do that exclusively for your own band, or did you pretty quickly also do it for other people? Because as, if I'm if I if I'm correct there, I think now you are a producer and engineer not only for your own band, but you do it for other artists too, and you have your your own studio where you do that. Um, so. How, how long did that transition take you and how did that go? If I'm honest, I think it's still a work in progress. I mean, I do have my studio here in my home, but I'm very selective as to who I record because it's in my home. If the dog doesn't like you at the door, you can't come any further. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's, it's not even really something that I advertise because I started off doing this primarily, as you said, for the bands that I was playing in and mm -hmm. just for a few friends here and there. And of course, as word gets out, people will start to to ask and come around, but... To this day, I still don't necessarily look at this as a career path, which seems weird. It's one of those things that I enjoy doing it, but at the same time, every time I sit down to do it, I get frustrated about the challenges that I face. <laughs> you know, I, I've got I a love-hate relationship with mixing. <laughs> with mixing or with like producing in general, like audio production in general? Yes, all of it. In all dealing it. with people. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. What was like remote mixing everything you were thinking about? And so like eliminating the whole people in your house and thing entirely? I've been considering that a bit more. Um, I do like doing remote drum tracking for other people and then just sending mm -hmm. them the tracks to work with. But the few times that I have done some remote mixing for others, it was admittedly a bit more frustrating than dealing with people because you have zero control over the tracking process and there's no way to make sure that you get good quality material. You do learn a lot in the process and you know you, you do your best to, to come up with something that's usable, 
but there's always the caveat of you can't truly sign off on it because you didn't track it. And it's like, man, there's a lot of noise in those guitars and there's no way we can fix this in post. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Which is the exact reason why I started the self-recording band and all this, all these things that I do here. Because uh, initially it was me helping people and t- telling them the same things over and over and over again, like the, the people that I worked with as a mixing engineer. And then I I just thought, well, I should just put all that information together for, for everybody and make it accessible and, and hopefully get some better tracks to mix as a result of that. And then it grew into its own thing. But the, the initial reason was exactly that. I wanted to help people m- get better tracks into their computer onto their hard drive so that the mix could be could be better in the end. So yeah, that's a, a true struggle. But I also do think that over the years the the general like level is just has just um, just went up. I think the overall average quality oh, is way better than it was like a couple of years ago. Um, more and more people can record themselves pretty well these days. And um, so this is an interesting question by the way in and of itself and this is one from our audience so I might just ask one of those questions that I got right now. Uh, because I think it's it's really interesting. Torsten, he's he's uh, in in one of my online courses, and he's in our community. He's a super cool dude that I meet in our on our coaching calls regularly. And he asks, he's also a Reaper user, and he asks, "Do you think that overall there is better music out there nowadays because everybody gets like decent results, or do you think it's there's way too much crap out there because everybody records themselves?" <laughs> Oh, this is a very polarizing question, and I will try to keep my answer brief but long at the same time. Now, I want to want to preface this statement with the fact that I am old. Remember that with every answer I give, I am old. <laughs> so in some respects, I believe that the quality of music has, has gotten exponentially better. But on the downside of things, I think that because music is like music production is so much more accessible by so many people that the talent pool is saturated, for lack of a better word. Mm. And you have a lot of people putting out what I would say the same song over and over again. Now you have a general population that enjoys top 40 pop music. And as long as you put out a one five six four chord progression, they think it's a great song. It can be 100% identical to the last song. And because you give it a new name, all of a sudden, hey, did you hear this great new song? To me, being the old guy, I'm like, this is exactly the same as the last song that was in that same spot in the top 40. So um, that didn't even really answer the question, but I'm hoping that you're seeing the mindset that I have here. I have a hard time with modern music because to me it all sounds the same. My wife is a good person to talk about in this, and she's not here right now. She loves pop music, and and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with enjoying that. But the more that she's been around me, which we've been married for 25 years now, she's learned to appreciate music and to hear all the individual elements instead of just accepting it for one contiguous piece. Um, Mm You know, it's like she could hear the one five six four chord progression and have no perception or concept of it because she may just be focusing on the lyrics, which is common with pop music. In a lot of cases, people just focus on the vocalist. Uh, whereas for me, uh, music—I guess if you were to think about it from the term, from the perspective of an orchestra—it's beautiful in and of itself as one piece. But you can also pick out the flutes, you can pick out the strings, you can pick out the timpani, and all these different little things to appreciate, which, in my opinion, are sorely missing anymore yeah it's, yeah i can uh, totally it's kind of hard to quantify it but it's just mm-hmm. frustrating to me that it that it seems that people who are insanely talented are glossed over it, that are making some some great music but you can have someone who has a certain look can't write can barely sing but they have an engineer that makes them look and sound good <laughs> yeah and all of a sudden they're at the top of the game with a mediocre song so I didn't answer that question at all, but I would say a little bit of both. Music has gotten better, but it's gotten worse. 
it's <laughs> that, gotten better so in quality of production, but in my opinion, and I, I want to put that at the forefront, in my opinion, the quality of the writing has gone downhill significantly because it's way too easy for people to put things out there. So there's uh, there's more quantity over quality these days, I think. Yeah, there's, I tend to agree. I still think, though, so I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second here because I, I still Bring think, <laughs> I still think, though, that... There's something to be said about being able to write something, even though it might be simple or like not the best song, but it still resonates with like a lot of people apparently. And I think even though you and I might not understand it or might not think it's really good, but if a lot of people are listening to that and putting it on their playlist and enjoying that, then it's probably not that bad. You know what I mean? Like so I'm not saying that every successful song is a good song, but I'm saying that there's something to it apparently because otherwise so many people right. wouldn't like it, I think. And, and that's an art in and of itself. So I kind of admire the songwriters who are able to make these these seemingly simple songs and, and but make them so that so many people seem to enjoy them. So. Well, I think that it's the familiarity perspective. Uh, if you take it from the... Like, let's look at the average cover band versus a local band that plays original music. The cover band will get gigs that pay a ridiculous amount of money every weekend, whereas the original band may be lucky to get a gig where they can recover their gas money. And mm. at the end of the day, the people at these venues aren't really that interested in the music at all. But if you can have something familiar for them in the background, the familiarity wins every time. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. You're totally right. That's definitely part of it. And and, and, well, and the, you even the, have to begin to think about it that way from a writing perspective. Like mm -hmm. if you want anything to get any kind of uh, notoriety or airplay or what have you, you've got to find a way to write a hook and almost compromise what you want to do as a musician for the sake of other people liking it. And I realize I'm very opinionated on this topic, so please do not it's take good. any of this as gospel. It is strictly an opinion, and there is nothing wrong with liking whatever the heck music you like. I, I'm just weird about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah, that's totally so, fine, and that's actually better than being like vanilla and like you know, it's good, good to have an opinion, you know. Well, uh, I'm at an awkward point to where I would be totally content to sitting in this room and making mediocre music that I enjoy, than writing a one five six four chord progression with the same vocal melody that's heard on every single song just for the sake of getting out there. I, I guess uh, I'm somewhat a purist in that respect, mm -hmm. but I also understand that my stance on modern music prevents me from being popular as a musician, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, 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 of, of course. And was that maybe also part of why you, as, if I'm correct here, um, why you didn't choose to go full-time with music production and music in general? Because... I believe you would be a good enough, of course, and you have been B. You would have an audience like you could pull it off, but then maybe you would be at least in the beginning. Maybe you would have to do a lot of things that you don't quite enjoy. So, was that part of the thought process that you you'd rather do honestly less projects and, but do the ones you really like, or is that not a, th a thought at all? Like, a I think that my real reason for not going further is, uh, if I'm completely honest, is fear and self doubt. <laughs> okay, the imposter syndrome, basically, or. Or pretty like, much, because yeah, pretty much. like there's people that like the work that I do, but I second guess virtually every move that I make. This is the part that nobody sees. You know, you see the YouTube mm -hmm. personality and think that I'm a certain way, but I cringe every time I get in front of a camera and every time I sit down at the DAW or if I sit down at my drums or pick up a guitar or bass or what have you, I'm constantly second guessing myself. And 
I'm at this awkward point in my life to where most of the things that I enjoy doing also cause me frustration because I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> oh, yeah. So <laughs> finding the delicate balance between constantly researching and learning new techniques and actually doing things, I feel like I spend so much time researching and not enough time doing, and that's really been an inhibiting factor in a lot of parts of my life. Totally. Uh, so you didn't know so... you were going to be my psychiatrist today. <laughs> I didn't know too, but like I can think that that's so relatable because yeah, I, I've actually had ex this exact conversation with a coaching student of mine this morning where we talked about like how we like to consume courses and read books and learn techniques and do the things. And sometimes the ratio between like learning, experimenting, researching, and actually implementing and doing can be off and we should all probably do more and consume less. And uh, so that's True. totally... Totally, yeah, totally relatable. And you learn so much more in just doing. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And I, you know, a lot of us are that type of person. We, when we go, when you have to go 10 steps, we want to know step nine before we even took step one. You know, we want to know the whole thing and we want to have it planned out and researched and all of that instead of just taking the first step. And then, you know, and that can, can keep some people from, from even getting started, which makes it even more fascinating to me that you took that leap and you started a YouTube channel and you've been consistent with it and you get in front of the oh, camera. let and me you, tell you, you about that. And you hit publish, <laughs> you know, because hitting publish is probably the hardest thing for many people, but you have been consistent, you've been doing it. And this, and, and even, if, even though you say you cringe when you see your own videos or that you feel uncomfortable in front of the camera, you, you still did it and you're still doing it. So what made you take that leap and like jump into YouTube and, and overcoming that fear? Well, the, the start was plain and simple, COVID. Uh, I was working at home for about two years. The limited interaction with people wasn't that big of a deal for me because I'm somewhat a hermit. I don't know how people perceive me, but if they think that I'm outgoing or wild or whatever based on how I am online. But for the most part, I'm quiet. I don't talk a whole heck of a lot. I have to make myself do things like this uh, to get out of that comfort zone and appear friendly. It's not that I don't <laughs> like people. It's just that I like quiet. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, at the time, I was wanting to learn more about video editing. And since we couldn't go anywhere and we're on lockdown, I'm like, I've got to figure out something I can record in my house to edit and I just got this idea, why don't I show something in Reaper? So my first video, I think, was showing the the navigator feature in Reaper, and I was really surprised that anybody watched it at all. <laughs> and it, I mean, it wasn't an overwhelming response, but it was more than one, and people seemed to like it and like the quote-unquote teaching style. And I figured, well, let me try it again, and I just kind of kept going, and I'm, I still feel like I'm refining it and figuring it out. I, I have no game plan. I don't have a list of topics. I had a short list for a while, but for the most part, the, the videos that I make are either spur of the moment, why don't I just turn on the camera and live stream what I'm doing right this second, or... I'm working on something and I either discover something cool or there's something that I'm doing that I've always done that I just think somebody else could probably benefit from this. So I'll just try to record it and figure out how to present it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a matter of fact, I, like it's Friday as of the recording of this and I haven't recorded anything for this week. I had an idea. And when I went to try what I was going to do, it didn't work like I thought it was. So I'm back to the drawing board. Maybe one of your questions will spark a video idea for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, maybe, hopefully. Even even more fascinating still. I, I think it's it's always cool when people overcome their their fear and just the, the thought of hitting stream, like streaming what you just said, streaming what you're doing right the second, the thought of doing that scares the, the crap out of most people. So, and you still do it, like, and... Even though you don't feel super comf comfortable about that, but um, I think that's fascinating. The odd thing about streaming is I don't worry so much about streaming, and I think it's because I'm used to playing live shows. 
Uh, I'm at this awkward point to where I don't really mind if I make a mistake. I'm human. I'm going to mess up. As long as my last move is greater than the mistake I made before it, it kind of doesn't matter. So I'm totally fine with like if some friends and I are having a jam session, let's just turn on the camera and see if anybody wants to watch. If I'm mixing something, turn on the camera, see if anybody wants to wants to watch. Maybe they'll have some questions. And I don't have to edit that stuff. So <laughs> it's just turn on the camera, make sure the levels are right, and see if anybody wants to hang out. I think I've I've done it on holidays, like I did it on Thanksgiving. I think I did one on Christmas, just no announcement whatsoever, just turn on the camera. And I find it amazing every time that people show up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's part, like everything you just described is probably the reason for why people like it. It's you being authentic. It's your, your personal teaching style. It's the fact that you are okay with messing up, that you are constantly learning. You're not one of those people who claim to know everything, which is very, very appealing to a lot of people, I think. Uh, it just makes you human and relatable. And and also, the streaming thing, I think people have seen so many very perfect, super edited like videos that it's kind of cool to see some, you know, some, some more of the real stuff, sort of, or the unedited or behind the scenes or whatever you want to call it. And it's great to be able to engage with the... Right, and to yeah. be able to engage with a live audience and answer a question right there on the spot is, uh, especially now when there's a lot of people, I mean, I'm I don't know. It's, we're at a weird point with, with COVID to where we've almost forgotten that it exists, but something still happens to remind you mm. of it. So some people are still sick. Some people are on lockdown. And it just gives a lot of people a way to engage despite being in less than ideal situations. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Totally right. Okay, so I want to go back to one thing you said earlier, which was about the details. And you you had this this orchestra, orchestra analogy where you hear all the, the subtleties and the details in the music and all of that. Do you mean... Just the the detailed, careful, carefully made arrangements, or are you also talking about like imperfections in the music that you're sort of missing these days? Because that's another Ooh. topic. It's not just the arrangements, but that it's is also a great topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the slight imperfections that that make music interesting sometimes, but they can also that is what's there's missing. a fine. That's what's missing, but it's a fine line because a lot of people also use it as an excuse for not playing tight enough. You know, there's this fine line. When is it like tight enough? And when is it like a cool imperfection that needs to stay in there? What's your opinion on all of that? Uh, That's a weird topic because both have their place. Mm -hmm. Um, Just depending on the genre, let's take death metal, for example. And even within that, that category, there's different styles of that. There's the extremely technical new wave type of death metal where everything is 100% grid aligned and, there are no mistakes. I mean, you can, and in most cases, the musicians can play that stuff, maybe not as tightly as the recording, but they, they get it pretty close. Then you go back to like the early to mid 90s style of death metal, even the early 2000s, and it was a lot sloppier, but at the same time, there was something about it that you just really enjoyed. Let's take, are you familiar with the chariot? Um, no, actually not. Look them up. <laughs> not right now, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, they yeah. had their first album was called "Everything Is Alive, Everything Is Breathing, Nothing Is Dead, Nothing Is Bleeding." It's a long mm-hmm. title. All the songs have really long titles, but what's fascinating about that album is every track was recorded in one take in real time, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it sounds sloppy. It sounds not perfectly polished, and it's one of my favorite albums of all time. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I feel like uh, there's something that I tell the people that do choose to record with me is that when they leave. Uh, I mean, and the people that do come to me, they come to me for what they would call my sound, which I don't necessarily believe exists. I mean, I guess I do have a bit of a sound, but I want them to leave with a product that sounds like them and has the band signature. And basically it sounds like them instead of sounding like the producer. Yes, Mm -hmm. I'd like for people to know I worked on that, but I also want it to sound like the band. 
And so often these days, I feel like music sounds more like the producer than it does the band. So yeah, we, we have music that is perfectly polished to the point, of, that's a lot of P's, um, that is so polished to the point to where the soul of the musician is missing and it's been uh, edited out of the production. But on the flip side of that, because post-production is so easily accessible, we have a new wave of musicians who don't master their instruments and <laughs> they have this mentality of, we'll fix it in post. Yeah. Uh, totally and it's true. for that reason, when people ask me, like, what do I charge for a song? I, I never give a flat rate. <laughs> and that, that's mainly because if you're tracking, you have zero control over that musician's ability. And you don't know if you give them a flat rate, if they're going to be there for four hours or 40 to get their part right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you could that you, you could if you like listen to demos, do pre-pro with them or make them do pre-pro and you kind of are selective about the... I mean, I used to charge flat rates and it, it went well, but only because I took the time to prepare them well, help them prepare well. or right. And also because I, I rejected the projects where I was listening to demos and was like, you're not ready to record yet, you know, but... I, I agree. If you don't, if you can't do that, and people just come in, and you have no control over that, it's you can that can go very, right. very wrong. Like, yeah, totally. I totally. even I would that. like to go and uh, watch a band perform live, either in their practice space or go to a few shows or something, to get a better feel yes. as to whether they're truly representing themselves to be what they really are. You know, because sometimes you'll get someone that that talks a good game, but you get them in the studio and they've never heard of a metronome. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Which is a, another interesting point, thinking about older recordings. Like, I love recordings from the uh, 30s to 50s and even the, the 60s, just really old stuff to where they may be recording, let's say, to two or three microphones in a room and just have the, the performers arranged around those microphones and levels set to a way that what they're recording is literally just the band playing. Back then, if you couldn't play your part or you couldn't sing, you didn't get recorded. But now, as long as you look good, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> yeah, and I think, st but still, I think good songs just sound better. And I still think, even today, with all the options that we have, it's still a good idea to be able to really be able to play your instruments and play your parts, and definitely to to know how to how to engineer, how to set up microphones correctly, how to do all of that, because then you can still do all the things in post, but it's going to sound better, and you're going to have a better time doing it. And so I I, I think. Even though you can fix a lot of things, it doesn't mean you should rely on that. But I also totally agree with what you said about the genre thing. There are some genres, and in and, and those genres are incredible players too, so it's not that all of them can't play, but there are some genres where the super tight, super polished, extremely perfect thing is part of the aesthetic. So it's it's not even a bad thing that it is like that. It has to be like that, almost like in some right. like metalcore, deathcore, like the modern metal genres, basically. That has to be super spot on. And then there are other genres where it's not like that. And then you have like outliers like, I don't know if you know Kurt Ballou from the band Converge, the producer. I don't know if you know him. Like Kurt Ballou almost invented, to me, he's like almost invented his own genre. He's one of those producers that you can definitely hear. Like you, this, the records sound like him, not, not, not so much. I mean, they sound like the bands, but they also sound like him. But that's due to the fact right. that he managed to make incredibly punchy, aggressive, and, and modern-sounding records that are still super raw and organic. And he does that, in my opinion, better than, than anybody or than most people. So there is the occasional outlier who can do both. But for the most part, modern metal bands kind of have to sound pretty perfect in order for it to have the impact that it, the music needs. You know, But that's, that's only true for a couple of genres. Um, in a lot of other genres, it's, it would be a lot better to have some of the uh, imperfections still in there. And, yeah, and part it's strange. Of the, I think yeah. that that mm -hmm. happy mm -hmm. medium is mm -hmm. what I strive to get. It's like I, I don't want mm -hmm. anybody to think that I'm totally against using no. VSTIs or 
editing because it's it's a necessary evil these days. But I think that finding that happy medium of performing well and just kind of tightening it up a bit, and I use the word a bit a, a lot in things that I teach, uh, and just trying to preserve the the feeling of that band and not necessarily make them sound better, but just, well, I guess maybe you do make them sound better with a little bit of editing. But, I guess you know, it's just, about like being I said, just finding that happy medium of... Right, using your modern conveniences and using the tools that are there, but not using them as a crutch, using them as a, something to enhance something that's already good. Yes. Of course, and a lot all, of that, that pressure falls yeah. back on the performer. So. Yeah, exactly. Like At the end of the day, the listener doesn't care whose fault it was or who did it. Like, either they like the song or not. And yeah, and, and so I think you got to do what, whatever serves the song. And at the end of the day, it's also mm-hmm. uh, about being intentional. So editing doesn't have to be... Editing doesn't mean putting everything 100% on the grid. Editing just means that every note is where it's supposed to be, whether that is perfect or not, but it's like where it's supposed to be so that it feels right. That to me is editing. So it can be intentionally intentionally making a snare slightly late, or it can mean making a drum fill slightly rushed or you know all these things, but it can also mean making it perfect. So you got to be intentional and you got to surf the song, I think. And the, one of the reasons why I'm asking these questions and I talk about this is that you have an editing course on ProMix Academy, um, a drama editing course, right? Um, that's this will contradict through. everything I just said. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's perfectly, it's perfectly, um, it, yeah, it's perfect that you have that actually. Because that just goes to show you like organic sounding music, you like imperfections, you like people playing actual instruments, but still you made a course about drum editing, which goes to show that editing isn't bad per se. It's just, it's meant to make songs better, performances better, but not necessarily 100% perfect. So I think it's actually really cool that you have this opinion and still teach people how to edit drums. So that is, yeah, I think that's perfect. My take on the drum editing is, uh, well, when you think about the old recordings, in most cases, the band recorded live on the floor. They didn't do a whole heck of a lot of drum editing back in the old days because even if the band had, let's take a song, for example, um, Back in Black from ACDC. You can hear that song speeding up within the first few measures, and it ebbs and flows a lot throughout the whole performance. But the kicker is the band stayed together. So even if the drummer sped up, the rest of the band followed the drummer, and it wasn't that big of a deal. These days, people are recording one at a time in most cases. In most cases, like yeah. you'll have some scratch tracks. The drummer will come and record their part, and the drummer may be a little bit fast or a little bit slow in places. But the next person coming in to record their part, they don't have the luxury of being able to predict whether the drummer was going to speed up or slow down. So for them to play in time to what the drummer put down, you kind of have to have it lined up to the grid. So in the course, I teach uh, lining up the drum's performance to the grid, but in a way to where it doesn't sound robotic. So you can still do that editing and preserve the human element. And the trick to that, in my opinion, is editing in larger groups instead of cutting every single note. In most cases, the drummer is in time with him or herself, but they may get out of time with the metronome a little bit. So you cut out sections and move small sections to where that section is still in time with itself, but just shifted a little bit. Totally. And I, I've seen that because I've, I've looked at the yeah the page they have on ProMix Academy where the outline of your course is, is on there, there, basically. And there seems to be a module called Fine-Tune Your Performance Musical Editing. And the description is pretty much what you just said. It's like, we want to keep the performance from sounding robotic and losing its feel. And you said, because otherwise, why would we bother recording live drums at all, right? So... You're totally yeah, right. You can There's tell some... I'm very opinionated about this stuff too. I find it weird yes, that drummers I, get too. picked on. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's like if someone were to, to bring in a singer and say, we're going to spend all this time recording you, but then we're going to replace your voice with samples. 
which they kind of do with Melodyne, but that's another topic for another day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I guess it, it's it's weird. Like uh, when people come to me, they never come to me because they're like, "Hey, Mike, we want this ultra polished modern metal production." I mean, that doesn't happen because they know that that's not what I'm into. <laughs> but yeah. if a drummer wants to sound like themselves playing on their drums, I'm the guy. Yeah, t- totally. It's still, and I, I'm just going to keep playing that role for now, but it's still, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I, I totally agree with every, everything you said. And like, uh, I, I like the, the, the organic raw stuff more than anything, but still, I don't think samples have to sound robotic either. Like they don't have to, they can't, there's a way to use samples and blend samples in a way that it doesn't That's a sound funny robotic. <laughs> yeah, t- totally. Uh, like, and I think that I, and I, to me, I don't think it's really weird to replace or to in, rather enhance drums with samples. I rarely, rarely replace, but I often enhance drums because I think like, where's where's the line, right? I, I use compressors and EQ and all of these things to make it work. So if I can make it sound better and maybe even less processed by just picking good organic sounding samples and then I have to do less processing, that might sound more natural in the end than trying to make something work that was not recorded ideally maybe or where the performance was lacking. So sometimes to me, the weird thing is that using samples can end up sounding more organic than trying to overly process something and trying to make it work when it just won't really. So this is a, yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, and I, I don't want. Uh, gosh, uh, people that listen to this podcast are going to come out of this <laughs> thinking I'm a jack wagon. But <laughs> no, no, it's t- they won't. They won't. It's, it's really great. But it's uh, good. the thing with samples is a lot of people think that I'm 100 against samples, and that's not the case. Uh, the truth behind why I have the mindset I have about samples is this: when I was first learning about sample replacement. It didn't make sense to me because the classes that I was taking at the time, I was taking uh, classes through a prominent online metal community who I won't name because I don't want to sound like I'm shaming them and I have a hard time (laughs) choosing my words sometimes. But I found it weird that sample replacement was the first thing people reached for when drums came into the equation, particularly uh, in larger studios. And and this may just be a lack of understanding on my part, but if I were working in a multi-million dollar studio with the best mics, the best engineers, and I'm bringing in the best performers to track, it would seem to me that I've already got the sound right there in the perfect room with the perfect equipment, with the perfect uh, person playing the drums. Why are you reaching for a $200 box of samples when you have Matt Halpern right there in the studio? Or an Sastry or something like that. And what I got to thinking was the only difference between them and me, so to speak, is like the person who is selling these samples is just recording drums right. Why don't I just learn how to record drums? Yeah. <laughs> so, so that that started <laughs> totally my years long passion, which is a forever work in progress of just figuring out how to mic live drums. And it, yep. I think that it's kind of becoming a dying art. Now, on the flip side of that, absolutely, not everybody has a big enough space uh, or the room treatment, which mine is a forever work in progress. I've got. You can't see them, but I've got a, a, gosh, 15 panels over there I haven't finished building yet to treat this ceiling, if you can hear the echo in the room. That happened after I took out the carpet and put in hardware, or hardwood flooring like an idiot. And, <laughs> you know, so, so for somebody who doesn't have the room for a drum kit or doesn't play drums, but they can lay down a beat with keys, or they can plot it out in the, in the piano roll, and they can craft their music without having to have a real drummer, it, it's amazing what you can do on a laptop what, that just made me think of something weird. A lot of people will call using samples cheating, but if I point the gun back at myself, I don't have an orchestra. 
what if I wanted a violin? What am I going <laughs> yeah. to do? Am I going to berate myself for using a sample of a violin? Or am <laughs> yeah, I just going totally to use right. contact? <laughs> yeah, which is back to what you said in the beginning, like use whatever you have and you can make great art with just about anything if you use it creatively and 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 uh, and so that it serves the song, gets the message across. So I, I totally agree with that too. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I think that's one of those things too. As we, I said before that people tend to to like the the raw more raw like unedited videos sometimes the same is true some i think for for audio like for music production and especially drums i feel like in the metal world and i've been i've been doing it full time for just about 10 years or so now and i've when i was when i started doing it full time any everybody in the metal or heavy world still wanted samples only basically or they they even they reached out telling me right away that they didn't care about the drum sound they just wanted 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 me to use samples and they didn't put much care into recording a lot of people did that but i feel like now it seems like things have changed a bit it seems like people are getting tired of that also a little bit and especially of the machine gun sounding fake drum sounds and i feel like people are hiring session musicians again instead of programming drums sometimes and people are trying to buy sample libraries that sound more organic and less robotic. And people are trying to learn, if they have the room, trying to learn how to record real drums. And a lot of the people that I work with now come to me saying that they want, if at all possible, they want to use their drums because they put a lot of care into it and they love how it sounds. Exactly. It kind of it kind of switched <laughs> a bit. It kind of, I don't know, as if people were, were getting tired of that from the past two decades of of super polished metal or something. Well, I, have I, don't to, know. I have to ask you a question now. So the, yeah. the people that are coming to you that are asking, in most cases, is it the drummer that's asking for samples on the drums or is it somebody else in the band? I usually talk to one person in the band, whoever the the, the, the sort of quote-unquote band leader is. And, and Which is never I don't know the what, drummer. <laughs> really, yeah. So I, I'm not sure what they're talking about in, like, in the band before they communicate that to me. But it seems like it is the yeah. Oftentimes it's the opinion of the whole band, and, and and oftentimes it was it's it's like the drummer even says that he he or she would be more comfortable with just programming drums or using samples because mm. they're not confident in their playing. That was the case more than it is now, and I still think none of that is, is wrong. And I've had great results with just programmed drums and samples. I just find it interesting that it seems to have shifted again to to more organic things and which wasn't the case for a long time so well, when you yeah. are doing programming of drums do you typically at least maybe do a video of the drummer playing the part or do you guys just sit together and, and plot it out with not having heard much of anything or how does that work for you there's typically two scenarios so the one is that they program it themselves and they deliver a printed version and the midi and then i might use their printed version if it's done well and if not i use it as a scratch track and then i refine the midi and choose better samples and you know refine that and the other scenario is that they record actual drums and then we either try to make it work or enhance it with samples or if they if they tell me right away that it's, it's only a sketch basically and they want programmed drums then um thomas my my assistant or partner engineer here at the studio He's more than an assistant at this point. He just he engineers things with me, and he's really he's a drummer, and he's really good at editing drums and also programming drums and playing drums, of course. And he will then use the scratch track and just program drums off of that, basically program better drums off of that. And depending on the budget, sometimes they they even want someone to play the drums again. But like most of the time, it's it's programming if they don't do it themselves. But it's it's very rare. So in most cases these days, people send me their drums and want me to use them. But that brings it's me never to another question I, then. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> so okay. in, in okay. cases like that, where you end up programming the drums for a performer that said they weren't confident in their ability, 
do they then go and try to learn what you've programmed for performances? Or in these cases, are they not necessarily bands that actually perform live anymore? Yes, they are. Um, they they perform live and they, I hope, <laughs> they, <laughs> they practice and get better after that. And oftentimes they aren't really that bad, but they don't feel like they are they can play at the level that they want to have on their on yeah, the A lot recordings. of people get nerves once it's studio time, even though they're good. Yeah, and also it depends on what they want to what they want the record to sound like when they compare, like when when their favorite records are clearly programmed or heavily sample replaced, and they want that aesthetic, and they just can't play consistent enough or hit the drums hard enough, and they want that supernatural, larger than life sound, then they're better off programming or using samples. If they like bands that actually sound organic and sound like real drums, then I sometimes convince them of just trying to use their their actual drums. It, it always depends. And sometimes they do shootouts. Sometimes they record it and they also program it and they just pick the one that sounds better or that they like better. So at different scenarios. But yeah, it's gotten more and more organic again. Which You is know what's weird cool. about all this is I'm in the middle of a project recording my own kit as uh, samples for an up-and-coming <laughs> developer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is cool. I mean, okay, so that's interesting too. Now, when you create samples, do you try to make them as like detailed and like round robin, multi layer, all of that as possible, well, or is, is it mainly one shots? Or this was my first time doing something like this, so I'm just following the instruction sheet they gave me. Okay. But okay. for example, on my snare, uh, they wanted at least twelve, uh, at least twelve hits per velocity and x amount of velocities per instrument. Um, so there, there will be plenty of, of round robin. I added in some things that they didn't ask for because I wanted to have some mistake notes in there, things mm-hmm. that were not perfect that will sound more human, uh, some things where you accidentally click the sticks together or eat a little bit too much of the rim or not enough of the rim so that you've got a pretty good percentage of it. I mean, it's going to sound good, but there's going to be some happy little accents in there to most definitely preserve the human element. We'll see if they like it or not. <laughs> Looking forward to that. So I assume you can't talk about who it is yet? I cannot, so, but uh, no, I don't okay. think anybody would know him anyway. So okay, okay. It's, it's, not a big, it's not a big producer at all, so... Hey friend, this is Benedict from theselfrecordingband.com and if you are producing your own songs, I have a question for you. Do you ever listen to your music and feel like something is just off? Maybe the drums sound weak, or the guitar tone bothers you, maybe the vocals don't really cut through the mix, or the whole thing just doesn't sound finished and professional, but you can't really put your finger on it? I know you want to release big, punchy, professional sounding songs, right? The type of authentic, unique art that connects with your audience on a deep level. But you're just not sure what's missing with your recordings. Somehow you just can't connect all the dots. And I get it, the amount of things to learn and all the conflicting information out there can be really overwhelming. Especially if you're a lone wolf trying to figure it all out on your own, right? Now here's the good news. Whether you've been self-recording for years or you're just setting up your first home studio, I want to offer you my personal one-on-one help. As long as you are determined to put in the work, I'm offering a limited amount of free one-on-one coaching calls with me. On this hour-long call, we'll dive deep into your recordings and create a personalized roadmap for you to finally solve the issues you're struggling with so that you can release music that you'll be proud of forever. If you are ready to see and believe that it's actually possible to achieve your goals and make the records you've always wanted to make, then go to theselfrecordingband.com slash call and apply for one of my limited coaching spots. I can assure you that making exciting and successful DIY records is very doable. 
We've done it. Lots of other people have done it. You can do it as well. Talk soon. TheSelfRecordingBand.com slash call. Okay, I'm curious to hear that. Though. That sounds that sounds interesting. Anything out of the ordinary, anything slightly different and unique is great to me. So I'd much rather use something like that than one of the sample libraries that everybody uses. It's gotten to the point where I can immediately tell which samples <laughs> they use. Black number five from Stephen Slate Drums. Yes, exactly. Kick <laughs> 10, Snare 12A right. was a thing for like 10 years or so. And then the last couple of the, uh, years, and I'm not want to, I think they make great samples, so I don't want to talk shit about them, but like, the Get Good Drums libraries have been so heavily used. I can immediately tell if somebody uses the modern massive kit and something like that. But like, you know, but it's not it's not wrong. And if they like it, they, there's no wrong or right. And who am I to judge? Yeah, that's um, the thing is like I constantly find myself biting my tongue by making the comments that I make. But it's it's exactly what you said. When you get to a point to where you can recognize the software that was used, mm-hmm. to me, that's a problem. Like, why not just sound like you? I think like when I when I get down on myself about my guitar playing because I've been playing since I was 13 and I still feel like I'm nowhere near the skill level I should be I have to remind myself that I wasn't put here to be the next Eddie Van Halen but I was just put here to be the first <laughs> me so yeah, yes. that's all I can do is be me and just yes. embrace it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I, I really want to talk about Reaper very soon, but I have one more thing I'm to sorry. say. <laughs> no, no, you're totally, that's, to, that's totally awesome. Uh, one more thing to say here, though, which is also an interesting thought to me. Uh, we both agree on the thing that we don't want to recognize the software or the samples, but what about like recognizing a guitar that's been used? Because like, where's the line? Is that okay then? Because if I listen to a song and I can clearly tell that this is a Fender Telly or a Strat or some type of Les Paul or whatever, like we can we can tell that oftentimes. So that's not a bad thing. So why why is it weird for us to be able to tell which drum was used or drum sample? I think the thing for me is, and and this will start an argument, but it's not the drummer you recorded. Yeah, <laughs> plain and simple. Uh, in a yeah. case of using yeah, an totally amp right. sim, at least in that case, it's still. The, the sound is in the hands. The DI recorded from that guitar, from that player. Whereas with mm-hmm. sample replacement, assuming you're doing 100% sample replacement, it's no longer the artist that you recorded, and it may or may not even be the hits that they did because they've been shifted. And mm. I don't know. I, I guess it's just that purist mindset that I have that I, I can't come off of it. And I wonder if I would feel the same way if I were not a budding drummer, you know, because it, it seems like the people that embrace these things the most are never the person who's getting replaced. <laughs> yeah, I've seen both. I've seen both. Some people don't have a, a single problem with that. Like, I'm the type of person I don't have. A, I, I tend to agree with everything you said, but I, on the other hand, I still don't have a problem with, with if I'm not the the one playing on the record. So, for example, I'm in a in a new band now, and I joined the band where all the tracks for the first record were already done. And they said, and I, I play bass in that band. And a friend of mine started the band, and he was like. I don't like you can retrack bass if you want. I have the eyes tracked and you can use them and mix the record, but you can also just play your parts yourself if you want to. And I'm like, nah, I'm fine. Like, that sounds good. <laughs> Let's just take the tracks you recorded. I don't mind not being on the record. I don't care, really. I can't play it. I will play it live and I don't care at all. But like, you know, I can totally understand if someone is like, I want to be on that record actually playing. So I don't know. To me, it's like, to me, the only thing that counts at the end of the day is that the record is as good as it can be and that it resonates with with people or with, our, with ourselves more than anything, but also with people. And I don't necessarily mind or care about how exactly it's been made as long as at the end, it sounds like the band and it sounds like something we can all, we are all happy with and stoked about. Like, that's the only thing that really matters to me more so than how it's been how it's right. been made. And it's weird but, because yeah. it's like I think with most productions, I mean, even the most perfect production you can can name, 
you can always find something wrong with it. And the fact remains that there is no such thing as a perfect production. You yes. just have a deadline that you finally decide to stop working on it. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. stuff that I put out that like I would pass to peers for review and they would say, well, I feel like this frequency is a little bit overbearing. You might want to adjust this. You might want to adjust that. And I take everything that they that they say to heart. But at the end of the day, if the band liked it, like I'm done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah, totally. And I also have to add before people, uh, because now that, that sounded really weird when I explained that. But when I'm saying like I don't mind not being on the record, it's also because probably because I still mixed it and I've spent a lot of time on the record and I'm still very much involved in it and in the sound of it. And so I feel like I'm part of it despite not having played the bass. If I wasn't the one mixing it, if I had done nothing on this record, that would feel pretty weird. But since I've contributed a lot, I don't really care about the bass. Probably that's part of it. I don't know. Anyway, let's talk about Reaper. You know how often I say that? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I I can imagine. I can imagine. I wanted to say it this time. Um, So... First of all, I feel like Reaper is kind of the perfect choice for a lot of people. A because it's cheap, B because it can do everything you can like you can imagine, like it's a very powerful DAW and there's really nothing you can't do with it basically, at least from what I've seen and from what I've tried. But the other thing is I and that might just be because I come from different DAWs and and they they work differently and look differently. I find it to that the, the learning curve is kind of steep to me, or it's like it, it just looks different. The the routing, the workflow is kind of different. Oh, it's, it's steep. <laughs> yeah. So 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 that's why I'm I'm often thinking. On the one hand, it's like the perfect DIY sort of DAW and an entry level DAW because of the low cost and all the power it has, despite being affordable. But on the other hand, I think it's pretty hard to learn and pretty complicated, and it's not necessarily an intuitive routing and workflow if you're used to other DAWs or analog gear or you know I think that's that the kicker so. is if you're used to other DAWs um, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to butt in let me back off for a second and let you finish forming the question <laughs> <laughs> no no for, for, uh, totally fine so my question would just be what's your opinion on that like when someone's starting out and they're not sure which DAW to choose would you would you recommend starting with Reaper and if so what would you recommend doing to to learn to learn it um quickly and and like is there yeah that that's the two part question okay. like would you recommend it and what would you do what would you do to learn it well i most definitely recommend it and there's one thing that i that i would like to say i hear a lot of people say that reaper is great for the price and i would want to counter that by just saying that reaper is good i mean even if it costs yes. $400 or $500 or $2 the amount of power that you get yes. in it price aside is insane uh, I believe that Reaper's blessing is also its curse, and that is its flexibility. Um, you made the point about it not necessarily being easy to come to terms to as a starting DAW. And in some respects, I can agree with that because the the default settings are less than stellar, in my opinion, even just little things like how it saves your files. By default, Reaper will create a, a project folder, and it will, will save all of your WAV files and all of your project files top level of that folder and it it looks like a kindergartner just threw up all over the floor. It's just files everywhere. <laughs> so there are um, John Tidy with Reaper Blog. He's got a fantastic series, or not series, but a, a video about starting with Reaper that helps you to set up some sane defaults. I've got a video on that same topic myself, but just little things like setting up your folder structure to where every project has its own folder, and inside of that folder is a subfolder for the audio where that's all contained, and inside of that folder is an automatic backups folder where it makes automatic timestamped backups every three minutes when you're not recording something. So if your computer crashes, you've never lost more than three minutes worth of work. And there's just so many things that you can set up that aren't set up. And I'm like, why didn't they just do this right out of the box? (laughs) Reaper to me is a lot like Linux. I love Linux, but 
if sometimes if you just want to sit down and get on Facebook, you don't want to have to compile things and look at manuals. You just want to sit down and look at what you wanted to look at. And <laughs> in that respect, Reaper can be difficult. But on the flip side of it, it's very rewarding. And in my uh, opinion, it actually seems to suit a more logical workflow in, uh, in some respects, particularly if you're used to working with analog equipment. Uh, I think that a lot of people these days have no experience with anything else, uh, so they they don't have the console mindset to compare it to. Mm. You know, I, I'd said that I've not worked in analog gear in studios, but I have most definitely worked with mixing consoles for live use, and Reaper seems to work in the same way a mixing console would in, in, to me. The really? One that, thing that's interesting. That, that confuses me. Now, I've never used Pro Tools. Um, mm-hmm. I have dabbled in uh, both Cubase. I think I spent a day and a half with Studio One. And one thing that keeps me going back to Reaper is the concept of how a track is a track. That may not make sense just saying that, but in Pro Tools, and correct me, do you, what do you use? Do you use Pro Tools? Um, I, I've used it, but now for the past um, seven, eight years, I use Cubase exclusively. Okay, and, and I'm not sure if Cubase follows this this method either, but I think most DAWs, they force you to choose whether a track is stereo or mono or if it's going to be a virtual instrument or, or yes. whatever. Whereas with Reaper, you just make a track, and if I mm-hmm. feed it stereo information, it's stereo. If I arm it to record from two sources, it's stereo. If I feed it a mono source, it's mono. If I put MIDI on it, it'll just interpret it. If I put stereo, mono, MIDI, and video on the same track, the playhead just interprets it as it falls over it. And it makes my life a whole lot simpler to not have to think about it. And if I want a track to be an aux, I don't add an aux track. I just add a track. <laughs> and then yeah, I feed I- other things into it. So it's... It's just the, the routing makes more sense to me, but it may just be because this is what I've spent my most time in. It, it seems that I see people fiddling with weird routing in other DAWs that just doesn't exist here. But maybe yeah, I'm the it, weird one. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, no, I totally get that. And you're the first person to explain it to me like that, and now it makes total sense to me. It was kind of the opposite. I I have very much like a console mindset. I use a bunch of analog gear still. I don't think it's necessary, but I I, I do enjoy it and. Um, and I've mixed on analog consoles before, and I think Cubase to me is the closest to an analog console workflow, sort of. And to me, the concept of there being mono tracks and stereo tracks or returns and like aux ends and aux returns and whatever you will find on a real console, that just makes sense to me. And the fact that a track is a track tends to, con- like, to this, to up until now, until you've explained that now, um, this con- used to confuse me. Because I was never sure if I was overlooking something, if I did it correctly. Is this now really a stereo track? Is it mono? Is it a whatever? I just like when things are have one function and are clearly defined. And when one thing can do more things at the same time, it's kind of making me insecure. It's the same. You just like, I don't explained like, Reaper in one sentence right there. Because there's a billion yeah. ways to do everything. And it's yeah. just a matter of which one do you like best. I think that is actually what makes it so challenging for a lot of people yeah. is... Uh, I mean, if you go back to like say Linux versus Mac uh, comparison, yeah. you know, with with an either an iPhone or any Mac products, you pretty much you use it the way that they tell you to. This is yes. the way. Whereas yes. with Linux, I mean, or with with Reaper, it is infinitely customizable to the point of uh, of nausea. You know, yeah, which again which is, is its also blessing cool. and its curse because like mm-hmm. if there's something that doesn't exist or if there's something that I want to improve. Let's say, for example, with my drum editing, I've got a macro that I set up where I can click one button and it changes like five or six mouse modifiers to where instead of using a handful of clicks and and things, when I want to split a section of groups drums, I can just left click to the left of where I want to split 
It'll add a split and a crossfade to the left of that mouse cursor across all the group drum tracks, and it also changes my mouse modifier to where if I'm clicking on the bottom half of the media item, I can slip at it without having to hold a keyboard key, which sounds silly, but it's like I've combined six actions into one one press, and yeah. as long as I've got that, that macro armed, it does what I want it to, and when I'm done, I click the reverse button to take everything back to their defaults. So it's kind of like scripting in some respects, but scripting it can creating these types of tools in Reaper can be as simple as creating a uh, what do you call it a custom shortcut that is a combination of multiple actions that already exist. Yeah. So it really speeds up your workflow, but the trick is you have to kind of have an idea of what you want to achieve. <laughs> totally, and and that's the one thing that keeps Reaper in the back of my of my mind, and I. I I have it on my computer because of that, and I constantly keep thinking about whether or not I should maybe try it again one day. Because I'm huge, like on I'm, I'm really huge on like systems and processes and in speeding up the workflow because I want to be focused on the creative stuff as much as possible, and and I don't want to think about the tedious stuff as much, and I want to just be able to move quickly and intuitively. That's why I have a stream deck here, and I, I create a bunch of macros and and. Uh, combination of of things, and I, I've sped up my Cubase workflow as much as possible. Um, at least, I mean, there's always more possible, but I've sped it up a lot. And I've seen people do really crazy things in Reaper that are still a lot of a, a lot faster and more efficient than what I do in Cubase. So that's what's intriguing to me. I just I just have to get around the routing and the weird stuff that I'm not used to. But I've seen crazy things like mastering engineers. Uh, Mike Kalajian, he's an amazing mastering engineer that I worked with on a couple of records and. He uses Reaper and the way he's customized that and how fast he can do things like, you know, when, when even like the importing and sequencing of a record and stuff, that takes the guy like less than a minute almost because right. it's like push of a button and everything's there and everything's like, it's insane. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, re- that's something that's really cool if you work on a lot of projects and you do a lot of things at once. Oh, the sub-projects mastering workflow is insane. Like you can have a, a mastering project open and you can have all the individual tr- uh, songs open in their own project in different tabs and the mastering project be automatically updated based on things that you do in the song level there's just so much weird stuff like that that, that improves <laughs> workflow but going back to the first time mm-hmm. user uh, this day and age you know given some of our previous conversation one thing that's a real turnoff for people that are coming that are considering reaper is the fact that it doesn't include a whole bunch of virtual instruments uh, best oh, yeah. i recall mm-hmm. it only includes one which is a really bad synthesizer <laughs> yeah and of course yeah. my my com- comeback to that is typically but you only spent 60 dollars assuming you even paid for it you can just go and get the instruments you want versus paying several hundred dollars up front or a monthly fee for a bunch of vstis that you don't even like anyway <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally true. Yeah, that that's true about the VSTs. On the other hand, I think that the the audio plugins that come with Reaper are pretty decent, and there are some tools in there that you don't find in the other DAWs. And I sometimes wish some of the Reaper plugins would be available on on Mac because, like, I'm on a Mac, and you can I think you can get the Reaper plugins individually, but only on PC. Right. The the standalone ones, you are correct. Yeah. So I wish some of the tools were avail- available, even just things like the the famous, like the popular Reastream plugin. Right, to, to use and stuff between like that, you your know? DAW and OBS. That, that's what I use for recording my uh, my YouTube yeah. videos. Yeah, yeah. So so I think you don't get the VSTIs, but you get a lot of really cool plugins and utility tools and stuff like that with Reaper. So And uh, the, the, with the plugins that come with it, uh, which they're, they're hundreds, <laughs> um, yeah. they, they're not attractive. <laughs> you should know that going up front, uh, you know, going into it, that the, the plugins are very utilitarian in appearance, but most of them 
uh, sound fantastic and they do what the label says. It really mm-hmm. it it can be a turnoff to some people who need a bit of a visual stimulus in order to to create, and I, I get that. But it definitely forces you to use your ears and to better understand your tools. The way that I've explained it to some is if you think about it from the perspective of an accountant. I've come across people who have the name accountant, but it turns out they just know how to use QuickBooks. And they don't know how to do the math. (laughs) So Reaper teaches you to do the math. So regardless of which accounting program you're using, uh, you'll have enough of the basic understanding of what these tools do to be fairly fluid in just about any DAW as long as you can find where the things are. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's a great analogy. It's a weird analogy, but it makes sense. But it makes sense, yes. So what would you say is the the custom, the, yeah, the customization part and the flexibility is that the the best thing about reaper or what do you personally like most about it are there some features you couldn't live without um and and what makes reaper the go well that the go-to thing for you that track as a track is a really big deal to me Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. um it's strange to me like even in picking plugins to pick whether it's a stereo one or a mono one uh, and on one hand it makes sense but on the other hand i'm like can you not just process the audio that this track is sending you <laughs> yeah, yeah, to- totally, totally. But I, and, I do like the customization. Mm-hmm. That is a, a big mm-hmm. deal for me. And for whatever reason, it just it just suits my workflow uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to me having to change my workflow to match what the DAW dictates. Um, what pretty much anything that I can can imagine, I can set up Reaper to behave in that fashion, and that's what I like. I'm a tinkerer by trade, <laughs> and mm-hmm. it just clicks with the way that my brain clicks. Yeah, you have an IT background, right? You're an uh, I, I don't know what I have what imposter syndrome is, with that as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but but you are like what 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 does the description read here? Like an IT. Well, my my current um, job I'm and what am I? I'm an IT manager for a multi-site medical clinic, but I spend the bulk yeah. of my day developing applications for the clinic, despite yeah. having no app development background. <laughs> I mean, you make records despite not having formal I like, like learning recordings <laughs> uh, background. Like it's the same for me. I've never gone to recording school, uh, school and uh, so I, and I still make records. So it works. <laughs> so okay, now do you have a few? Maybe I, I don't know. It, it's it might be too. Uh, it might be hard to come up with something here on the fly. But maybe do you have a couple of tricks or things you do in Reaper that are not well known or that are not super popular or common or that you that people are overlooking or like some some special hacks or tricks that that you want to tell people about when they use Reaper? Well, uh, one thing that I would tell anybody, especially someone who is new to Reaper, is right-click everything. There, it, it can be difficult to find your way around Reaper because there's so many things that are buried in menus. But if you right-click any particular item, you'll get uh, context-based menus that will bring up things that are specific to that item. That's a really good way to find out more functions that are available. Just for example, if you were to right-click the record arm button, which why would you do that? There's different record modes, like your default mm-hmm. is just to record until you hit stop, but there's also record uh, time selection. So if you've got a time selection, you can hit record from any point, and it's only going to record once it crosses over that time selection, except that Reaper is a liar. It's actually recording the entire time, so once you hit stop, it only shows in that time selection, but you can trim it backwards if you wanted to pull in some as you played into that section, and it recorded afterwards. <laughs> so, okay, okay, um, okay, cool, that's cool. 
And gosh, let's see. So the, and just right clicking within anything, that's a great one. Also the actions uh-huh. list. Uh, again, mm-hmm. if you're having trouble finding anything, if you click on actions and bring up the actions list and just type in a word to filter it, you can find anything that Reaper can do based on whatever words you typed in. Like if you wanted to find an action to, there's one that I use to automatically move my time selection to the right or to the left based on the current time selection. So if I've got four measures selected on the ruler, I can click a button to select the next four measures and zoom my screen in horizontally to those four measures. How do you find that? If I go into the actions list and start typing kind of what I'm looking to do, I can probably find an action to do it that may or may not be bound to a key press or may or may not have an easy-to-find menu option. But if I can find it in the actions list, I can bind a key press to it or I can create a custom toolbar entry to where I can just click a button and trigger that action. Or I can glue a bunch of actions together to create a custom action then make a toolbar uh, icon for that or key press for that. Awesome. It's it's complicated, but kind of easy. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally, totally get that. And and how did you discover these things? Did you read the manual? Did you experiment a lot? Did you like uh, that manual? That? I'm still reading the manual. Uh, the manual is like 700 something pages, which is not that long because I'm also going through uh, to get my certification for DaVinci Resolve, and the manual for that is 4,500 pages. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I think that a lot of it, I, a lot of stuff I learned from John Tidy from Reaper Blog, just watching his videos and talking with him online and just it, interacting with other people in the community, both on the Reaper forum. Of course, mm-hmm. that, that was long before I started my Discord server, which is just over a year old now. I'm learning a lot of stuff from people there, even though they're there for me. They don't know it, but I'm kind of leeching knowledge from them daily. <laughs> T- totally. Sa- same here. Same here. I learn mm. from our community every single day. And uh, yeah, cool. Awesome. Just, just, just so many resources online to, mm-hmm. to learn from. So I'm constantly finding myself looking at things on YouTube and in those forums, learning from other people's questions, that, so things that I wouldn't have even thought to ask. Like, that looks interesting, so I'll dig deeper and find something new just about every day. Okay, yeah, that's... Being a, being a, a lifetime student is, is a great thing in general, I think. Yeah, that's that's very cool that you have that, that sort of mindset. And just out of curiosity, why are you trying to get the, the DaVinci Resolve certification... Um, is that a necessity for some reason, or is it just not at all? You it, do? It's I think it's a personality quirk. I, I just I have to keep learning stuff, and I, I guess to me that just is a sense of accomplishment to get that certification. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to learn it inside and out. That's what I use for editing my videos, and I'm getting a lot more into video production. Uh, fun fact: Reaper does video editing too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Going back to well, going back to John from Reaper Blog, both uh, John with Reaper Blog and Aria with IDDQD Sound, uh, both being YouTube personalities, they use Reaper for their videos. Now it doesn't go as in depth as Resolve, but they seem to be doing a great job with it. It just doesn't the workflow doesn't click with me for video, okay. um, particularly when doing like multicam edits. Crazy to think that it can do it on that level because I mean Cubase and even Pro Tools can do video editing in theory like a very basic version of that but it's unusable you can cut and <laughs> move things around but that's it you know so it's crazy to think that a doll can do that too <laughs> well i kind of hope that, that justin doesn't dig too far into video editing because you start to lose focus and you mm-hmm. know once you start to add too many functions to a product uh yes b- both of all the different functions start to suffer because you've just lost focus yes 
Totally. Almost inevitable. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right. So I, w- I have a, l- a ton of que- more questions myself, but I want to get into the questions that I got from our audience because I promised to to ask those. I, mean, I know we've been going for a while, but if you don't mind, I would le- I would love to ask these questions. Gladly. Awesome. Perfect. Uh, this is going to be a little longer than our usual episodes, but I, I'm pretty sure people won't mind. Before I go to the to the technical or the the music related questions, I have one question that's very important. This is sort of an ongoing thing in our in our community. Is it about the beard? and sorry sorry <laughs> is it about the beard? No, it's not about the beard actually. <laughs> okay. uh, so if you're watching this on YouTube, you can maybe see that I have like these fat fat stains here on on my shirt, and that's because I just ate pizza and I dropped a slice of pizza on my shirt before. <laughs> and I'm, I'm telling you this because we have an ongoing thing in our community, and that is the the the, the question: pizza or burgers? What's your answer to that? Both. Uh, I mean, we have hamburger pizzas here. <laughs> What's a hamburger pizza? <laughs> it is a pizza with pickles and ground beef and tomato and mustard and all the stuff that you would have on a cheeseburger and tastes like magic. <laughs> it, it does? Really? Yes. Okay, okay that's, the, that's the answer to end this discussion probably, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, so the answer is both. All right, all right, all right. Well... Um, okay. Th- thank okay. you. <laughs> Look, I'm going to turn this back. What's your favorite cereal? I, and if you say you don't like cereal, this interview stops now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry, but I, I'm afraid that's the answer. To be honest, uh, like that, do 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 oats count as cereal? Like oatmeal is that cereal? Ooh, oatmeal. Do you know what's great with oatmeal? No, coffee. Creamer. I mean, I, there's a lot of things great about oatmeal, but coffee creamer. I don't know. In, instead of buying the flavored oatmeals, just use plain oatmeal in whatever flavor coffee creamer you want, and put a couple of tablespoons of that in the oatmeal, and just stir it in, and it's fantastic. There we go. Like <laughs> dropping knowledge things. bombs left and right. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Wow, awesome. Like, uh, are you big into cereals? Oh, very much so. I think, I, I'm, despite my age, I'm still like six years old. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I drive right, home I from work for lunch to eat cereal. <laughs> really? That, that's yes. going cool. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird. I don't I don't eat a ton of sweet things in general. I like I like more of the, the I'm more of the spicy sort of foods. I don't know. Even like in the morning, I don't eat sweet things. So, but I yeah, oatmeal is cool. Oh, we can get down <laughs> with spicy too. I like spicy. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other topic. I'm just growing Carolina Reaper chilies Ooh. on my on my balcony, so which do is like Reaper. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, exactly. I haven't thought about that. I do like Reaper. I've never tasted it because, and I'm afraid I'm gonna die if I do. But like, I'm, I'm <laughs> small we'll doses see. at first. Just remember that. Yes, yes, totally, <laughs> totally. Okay, so to the to the other questions now. Wayne Coulson asks, and you already know Wayne, I think he made he bought a, the drum editing course. I actually met him online. Yeah. Two, I haven't met him in person, but we've talked online quite yeah. a few times. Yeah, and he. He's in my coaching program, and he sent me a song to to give feedback on where he, I think, used your drum um, tracks. And he oh, made the a thing s- about the uh, clown in the attic or something like that. I think it was called. He sent it to me, and I can't remember what the name of it was. But I had done a. I don't remember clown in the attic. I, I did a one take playthrough of a song. So I was just goofing off on drums, yes. listening to a, a yes, backing track, and put up the tracks for anybody to use. It was like fifteen minutes of me sloppily drumming, and he made a pretty cool song with it. <laughs> yeah, Wayne is Wayne is amazing. I I love the song. I love the way he distorted the drums and made right. them go left to right and all that. So and I like the fact that he chopped it up and he didn't just use the straight fifteen minutes, but he chopped up pieces and rearranged it, which I thought was great because most of the other ones that I've heard, people just tried to use it as is. Awesome. Yeah, totally, totally. I I enjoyed the song too, and I was pretty stoked to read your your feedback that you gave him. So that was a cool moment for for both of us. So um, yeah, really cool. And he asked a couple of questions. So. 
First question was, how exactly did your work with Warren Hewitt and Pro Mix Academy come about? Um, and how did <laughs> that happen? That's a fun story. Um, Adam Steele from Hot Pole Studios, I had messaged him when I had the idea for the drum editing course, and I knew that he had a course out, uh, the Ultimate what was it, Ultimate Reaper Guide, and was just asking him for some advice as to how to go about distributing this once I got it done. And he just kind of, without missing a beat, said it might be a good fit for Pro Mix Academy, let me message Warren. And he messaged Warren and copied me on an email to him just to make the introduction. And like a month goes by and I get nothing back. And I'm just like, maybe Warren just didn't like it. So I messaged Adam just to follow up to see if maybe he had heard anything. So he pinged Warren again and Warren messages me the next day because it had gone to a spam folder. (laughs) And he just never saw it. So we talked over email and he uh, talked about wanting to schedule a phone call. No, I'm thinking schedule. So I gave him kind of my work schedule, my availability. Let's let's see if we can find something that works. And I gave him my phone number. A few days later, it was July 4th of last year. I'm at a friend's house around the pool and the phone rings and the caller ID says Warren Hewitt. (laughs) This has got to be a joke. (laughs) So I answered the phone and it's actually him. Wow. So we we ended up talking that first day for about two hours, which was wild. It was almost as if we knew each other, which was kind of cool. He's very down-to-earth, very easy to talk to. And he liked the idea for the course, and I told him, like, I don't have anything tangible. It's just kind of a vague idea right now, but, you know, I'd I'd like to get it finished and send you some samples and see what you think. And then I got COVID. (laughs) Oh. So I had planned, I'd scheduled myself a week off of work to produce that video. And I got sick the Saturday before my week off. And since then, like it took me a couple of weeks to get better, but then I couldn't stop coughing for like four months. Oh, shit. (laughs) So it it made it really difficult for me to make even just my short videos on YouTube because I would start coughing uncontrollably, but I definitely couldn't sit through those long sessions to do that video. I finally got that video finished this year. (laughs) (laughs) And it went out March 27th, I think. April, May, yeah. Was it March? Was it May? I don't know. It was a few months ago. but And I have no clue how well it's doing, but I've had people that have messaged me about it. And yeah, I, I guess the short version is it all came about from a warm introduction from Adam uh, Adam Steele with Hot Pole Studios. Wow, awesome. R- really cool story. But you say the one video. It's not just one video, right? It's a full course. Isn't oh, it? it is. It's about yeah, six yeah. hours. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, yeah. But And I've got but it broken a- into chapters, but it was yeah. just it was so hard for me to sit here to finish a chapter because you know, I, I edit my videos to to an extent because I don't have a script. I just kind of babble, and I may have to say the same thing six times to get it right because I'll get words jumbled up in my head or I'll do something like this, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but to, to do that and have to edit out all the coughing, it was just maddening. <laughs> yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah, but that's such a cool story. And also so cool of Warren to just call you and then take the time to talk to you for two hours and, like, that's yeah. That's that's really cool. Uh, it's, it's wild. Really, really it's cool. really it's opened up the door for for more courses. I know that he he did mention wanting to create a Reaper centric library because so many more people are coming to terms with Reaper, uh, both yeah. in the hobbyist uh, side of things as well as in the professional side of things. And uh, you know he, he's definitely interested in me making some more things, but I'm kind of a firm believer in taking other people with me. So there's I got an army of Reaper educators with really good content that I hope to see them on there soon too. It, it's it blows me away every time that I look at ProMix Academy and see little Mike Robinson right underneath Misha Mansoor. <laughs> so, <laughs> so even though I'm just like some random brown guy in Tennessee, it's awesome to see my name <laughs> in the same leagues with these legends. 
So, yeah, it must be a pretty cool feeling. I can I can imagine. Yeah, uh, and and so you kind of already answered the the second question he had, which was, do you have any more courses planned? So the answer is yes, apparently. I wouldn't say planned. I'm still kind of kicking okay. around some ideas. I, th- I think the mm-hmm. thing is, I I feel that I do well with short courses, <laughs> like or just yeah. short YouTube videos. Uh, I have a hard time making things like long format because I, I don't know if it's a gift or or what you want to call it. I have a tendency to explain stuff really short, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is great. Um, I mean, my first few videos were like one and a half to three minutes, and it's a struggle for me to make a video longer than six minutes. So that's why I started adding in so much stupid stuff, like the the whole deal about I like coffee is which I do like coffee, but people think I'm a coffee fiend. Like I don't think I've had coffee for two or three days now, but. Uh, when I started really? my YouTube channel, I'm like, I'm never going to get this channel to a point of being monetized. Maybe I can find a way for people to want to support me. So I looked into that buy me a coffee thing, and it just became part of a segue to mention the buy me a coffee link. <laughs> so. Yeah, 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 to- totally, totally. And I think that's such a good skill to have to be able to explain something in a short amount of time. That's something I wish I had because I tend to be long winded and I tend to go into all of the details, which is also kind of cool, I guess. But um, but I wish I, I was able to just break down a concept into a two-minute thing and still get the point across. I tend to take too much time. So, yeah. Um, well, it's weird, though, because like, even like my five-minute videos may be whittled down from an hour's worth of footage <laughs> because that many <laughs> mistakes were made trying to say something, you know, mm-hmm. simply. <laughs> so. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but that, yeah. It's good. It's good, a good thing, a good skill to be to have as a teacher. Awesome, cool. So next question is also from Wayne. What monitors do you use in your studio? I, I assume he means speakers. Well, we'll cover both. Uh, my video mm-hmm. monitors are a couple of twenty-seven inch BenQ four Ks that I'm still coming to terms with. I recently switched from ten eighty p to four K just to get more real estate, and I quickly learned that a lot of applications don't play well with display scaling. So I am suffering with 4K at 100% instead of being scaled to 150 or 200%, and I wear bifocals. <laughs> so as for my audio monitors, I've got yeah. uh, Kali LP8s. Mm-hmm. Great. And I, mean, Great. I guess they're okay. I don't have anything else to compare them to. And I'm kind of weird about monitors. I, I mean, I, I've not ever experienced any, like, top-end monitors, at least not to my understanding. Well, I, mm-hmm. I probably did in some of the studios in Nashville and just wasn't aware of it. But I'm mm-hmm. a firm believer that even crappy speakers will work fine as long as you learn the speakers and, and learn your room. That's important. Uh, if I were to replace these monitors today with some of the high-end Atom speakers, I think that all my mixes would be terrible because I haven't spent the time to learn those speakers in this room. And you, you really have to learn those those nuances to be comfortable that what you're hearing is accurate. Absolutely agree. I'm on the same pair of speakers for ten years now, and I'm to- I, I thought about switching a couple of times, but I'm totally scared of doing that for that exact reason. Right. And um and and that's the, one of the first things I do with with my coaching students as well is I make them do a couple of tests so I know what they are actually hearing, and then. We try to optimize a few things, of course, about their monitoring situation. But then I just basically what we do is I try to make them learn the flaws of their room and their speakers and just get used to that, basically, because no room is really perfect. No right. monitor set is perfect. And you just exactly what you said. You just got to get used to it. Um, well, and totally it's agree. weird because like, I, there's so much science behind the placement of your speakers as well as your listening position. Like where I sit now, my speakers are approximately 33 degrees you know, it, I'm an equilateral triangle between my monitors and myself. I've 
found that I was having a lot of trouble with low end in my mixes. And if I recall, I think I maybe was mixing way too much low end into things, or it may have been the mm-hmm. other way. I got a 50 50 shot at this. But as I was vacuuming in here one day and I was listening to Silent Planet or something, I noticed that as I got to a certain spot in my room, I just stopped cold and I'm like, that's what it sounds like in the car. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. It, and it awesome. was uh, several feet back from my desk. And I noticed as I moved forward, what it sounded like versus when I moved back to that position. And that led me to, uh, I, I'm terrible about it. Like I'll get an idea in my head and it's like an ice pick that just chips away at my head until I go and learn everything I can about something and started <laughs> studying about speaker placement, which I still don't fully understand, but I started to understand that because my speakers were so close to my back wall, it was creating, um, I don't remember what the word was, maybe standing waves or something. I'm, I'm not that technical, yeah. but it was giving me mm-hmm. a false impression of how much bass was actually represented at my listening position. And it was dead wrong. So now I have this really weird gap between my desk and the back wall. There's a lot of wasted space back there, but I can hear better. So. Yeah, totally. Yeah, to- totally. That, that's huge. That's uh, The position in the room is actually huge. Yep, totally right. Interesting to hear and that. And I could have overcome that except for one thing, You know, even without moving, the fact that I don't spend a lot of time sitting in this room just listening to music for enjoyment. I mean, matter of fact, if I'm mm. honest, I hardly listen to music anymore. As I said before, yeah. I'm old, and when I'm in the car, I usually have local <laughs> talk radio. I got to start listening yeah, to more too. music. <laughs> me too. Podcasts, audiobooks, <laughs> talk radio, yeah, that type of thing. But understandably so. If you spend a lot of time working on your own music, you got to do something else afterwards. So, I mean, yeah. Okay, great. Thank you for the answer. Now, next question. Uh, he says, you recently brought up uh, brought up an issue with Plugin Alliance and a delay that oh occurs when you're opening their plugins. Did they ever get back to you about this? I don't actually know what Wayne is referring to because I use a lot of the Plugin Alliance tools. They are my favorite um, plugin collection. So I use them all over the place, but I've never had any delay issues. I'm curious to hear. Well, um, from what I can find, and I've, I've had Plugin Alliance plugins. I don't have a subscription, so I've just bought the plugins that I use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've all worked fine until somewhere around the, maybe around the third or fourth quarter of last year, I started noticing that some of my projects were very slow to load. Uh, I thought mm-hmm. maybe there was something wrong with my computer, so I did the usual um, system file check. I'm running Windows on that, which I usually do that every quarter anyway because Windows has a tendency to tear itself up over time if you don't maintain it. So I yep. went through the system file check and found no corruption, checked my solid-state drives to make sure they're not failing, ran RAM checks to make sure that I didn't have a bad stick of RAM. Everything seemed fine, and I just chalked it up to having a crap ton of PA plugins on this project. Fast forward to around February or March of this year, and I saw somebody posting the exact same experience on a forum, which got me to to thinking. So I posted back Mm. in there, and after talking with some people, I found that a lot of people were having the same problem, and it wasn't isolated to Reaper. They had it in other DAWs, too. And I started noticing that even if I use those plugins in DaVinci Resolve, because I can load VSTs there in the Fairlight module, they would have a bit of a delay in loading as well. Further research suggested that Plugin Alliance introduced something that uh, some programmers slash hackers that have reverse engineered some things are calling the PA layer that appears to be some type of copy protection. The thing that doesn't make sense to me is how it's affecting some people and not others. But when it happens, there's about a three to five second delay in loading per instance. So I put out a video about this uh-huh. and showed so, it. So you mean I, when, when loading the project, you mean, sorry to, for, to interrupt you, just to understand correctly, when... when when, when loading the project, not not a delay on a certain track, but when you open up the project, it just takes long to open the project. Is right. that what you're talking about? And okay. Now, once the instance of the plugin is loaded, it performs flawlessly and doesn't take up a lot uh-huh. of resources. The plugins sound and work great, but if I've got 50 instances of random PA plugins across a project, that's 50 times 5 seconds or so that I have to wait for that project to load, whereas this time last year, the project would have opened in like maybe... 
five to ten percent of the time. Ah, and in the video that I made recently, what I what I showed and what I found is that some of their plugins, like the ones that are non-plugin alliance or Brainworks branded, like some of the SPL or mm-hmm. Lindell plugins that don't have that PA or BX moniker, they don't suffer from this problem. And if you check the change logs on these plugins, all of the ones that open instantly have not been updated in uh, in probably the past year or two. Mm-hmm. But all of the plugin alliance and Brainworks ones. They will pause without fail pretty much every time that I I can open up a project now and put one instance of SSL 4000G on it. It's going to take five seconds to open. And this is on a Ryzen 7 CPU, all solid state drives with 64 gigs of RAM. (laughs) Wow, that's interesting. I always thought that like it's a a Cubase thing that it just whatever the latest Cubase version just takes longer because I noticed my projects taking longer too when I open them, but I always, I didn't think about the PA plugins, but I have them all over the place. So my template is full and my mixes are full with PA plugins. And I was kind of wondering why it took so long because I'm on an M1 Pro um, MacBook, which is insanely fast. And and I was surprised by how long it took to open sessions, but I never thought about the PA plugins being the problem. Well, and and when I posted that video and also on the the forum response, I had requested for people to try the test, doing it the same way that I did and just doing a blank project. That way it's not associated with a bunch of stuff on other tracks or anything that you've got in that project. Add a single track and load one instance of a plugin alliance plugin on it, uh, preferably something that's branded properly and time it, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. delete it. And load another plugin uh, again from Plugin Alliance that's not branded PA or BX, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. most people experience the same thing. They said like wow. the the Lindell channel strip, for example, would load in a second or less, but the uh, Brainworks channel strip plugins, it, whether that be the console in or the four thousand G or whatever, three to five seconds. Wow, which is, is not that, that big okay. of a deal, but if you've got yeah. several of them. Yeah, totally. And so Did it they got get, to the point to where, like, a, uh, well, the last response I got from them was in April. They did acknowledge mm-hmm. that there was a problem, but mm-hmm. they've not, uh, at least not in my direct ticket, that uh, I can't tell that they've done anything to correct it. And a problem that I'm having with the Plugin Alliance uh, ticket system is you can't add any response. So if oh, you wow, if you okay. log into their website mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. try to add a response to the ticket, you get an invalid token request after typing in all your gibberish. Now, if you respond to their email, it'll send it to them and it'll append it to the ticket. But you can't do it directly on the website, mm, which is okay. kind of weird. <laughs> kind of, yeah, that's weird for sure. Okay, all right, um, interesting. Again, again. Uh, I hope they uh, fix it because I do like the plugins. Yeah. I just yeah, yeah, don't too, like yeah. having to wait that long for a project that shouldn't take that long to open. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of destroys your advantage that you've created with editing and with creating all the shortcuts and scripts and stuff in, in Reaper. So you got super <laughs> fast, but now you have to wait four minutes for the session to open. <laughs> and, and for a project that I had that I was trying to finish up, I just got to the point to where I would launch it and go like make myself a cup of coffee or get a snack or something. Yeah. And by the time I came back, the project was open and it was it was flawed after opening but yeah, uh, yeah. and I don't know how it works in Cubase but like when you open a project that you've already saved in Reaper it's got the splash screen for Reaper and it'll show what what plugins are loading kind mm-hmm. of in text at yeah, the bottom and you'll see them flying by except it stops on each plugin alliance plugin for so many seconds <laughs> never paid attention to which plugins there were but yeah it definitely does that uh, now, from too, what so. I understand a lot of soft tube plugins will do the same thing so, but I don't, I don't have any. <laughs> since, okay. since then, though, I know that uh, IK Multimedia had their group buy, so I like own pretty much every IK Multimedia plugin now, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. most of them load near instantly. There's a few that are kind of resource intensive that'll take a few seconds, but uh, just I like their plugins too. I, I missed some from Plugin Alliance already, but I don't know. It's a few seconds. I, I don't have much le- longer left on this planet, so I need to keep these these seconds. <laughs> yeah, to- totally right. I mean, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seems like such a trivial thing. And I, I would think nothing of it had it always been this way. But yes, that whole thing of like, thing. did this, pro- this program, no, what, what program, what does he call it? Did this project used to load this slow? I'm pretty sure yeah. it didn't. And then finding yeah, out yeah. what's happening to other people, like, at least I'm not crazy. Yeah, <laughs> so. that's the thing. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I will, I will pay attention to this now and do some experimenting. Cool, <laughs> thank you. So final question from Wayne is, is your ultimate plan to topple Kenny Joya from his YouTube throne? <laughs> I don't think that that's possible. <laughs> Kenny's good people. And I learn a lot from watching his videos too. So, okay, awesome, awesome. There, there's awesome, an, cool. there's enough room for all of us, and even if I were to teach the same thing that he teaches, uh, what I'm finding is a lot of people just prefer different teaching methods. So, I mean, I could say the same thing that Kenny's already said, and my yes. audience will resonate with it just because I said it in the way that I say things. <laughs> none of the like none of the things I'm teaching, like I I haven't I haven't invented any of those things. Maybe I have a couple of techniques that are unique to me, but like, you know, but still um, people find value. And this is true for almost anything, you know, um, I totally, I totally yeah, agree. There, there's a, a scripture, I think it's somewhere in Ecclesiastes. I don't claim to be a biblical scholar, but it's something yeah. to the effect of how there's nothing new under the sun. And yes, <laughs> that is yeah. very much true. It's all rehash, especially with pop music. There is nothing new. It's all <laughs> one, five, six, four. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right. So, and then uh, Torsten has a couple, and then I promise we'll be we'll be done. And just tell me if this is taking too long for you, right? Oh, this so, is fun. Go right ahead. Awesome. Cool. Cool. So, his question: the first two questions have already been answered about your journey and the four track thing, and how you uh, happen to discover Reaper and all of that. Um, but the next one is really interesting, and this is why is and I'm not like I'm just reading his question. I'm not saying that I agree with this statement. Um, but he says, why is Reaper still considered a semi-professional tool or a toy, quote-unquote toy, in the general perception against Cubase, Logic, Pro Tools, etc.? I, I don't a, necessarily think that's the case, but maybe you have some In certain that. circles it still is, and I think it's uh, really just because of the perception based on price and not ever having used the software. Uh, mm. if, we, if we just simply take the name of the product Pro Tools, just the fact yeah. that it has Pro in the title <laughs> suggests professional, and... Now, I don't know if you can agree with this sentiment, but literally every studio I've ever been in, literally, <laughs> where they're using mm-hmm. Pro Tools, they're cursing it the entire time because something's yes. crashing and breaking or not working. And in my mind, I'm like, why do you use this if it's that frustrating for you? And it's because it's the industry standard. Now, is it yeah. the industry standard because it's the best or is it the industry standard just because it got in the right place at the right time? Only you can really answer that question. But I think that it's... Pretty much just a strictly a matter of perception because I mean, well, like you said with Mike Kalajian or Kale- I can't know how to say his last yeah, name. Yeah, Mike Kalajian. Uh, yeah, I would consider him a professional, and he uses it. <laughs> totally, and it's most definitely heavily in use. And uh, for some reason, Reaper seems to be dominating the world in video game music. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and and you know what? I I think part of it is also that people tend to defend things that they've invested a lot of money into yeah, like they I think tend that was to a confirmation bias is that the right word yes exactly <laughs> so and back in the day like when pro tools came about in like in the 90s when when studios switched to pro tools it was a significant investment to get a pro tools rig you had to have the have the interface the io the all this the, like this was a five figure sometimes six figure investment to get a full pro tools rig with, that would like have enough ins and outs for the console and all of those things and those studios started to invest in the pro tools ecosystem and they just don't didn't want to leave it i guess after right. doing that and and even to this day, I mean, it's more open now, but even like a couple of years ago, you still had to have 
a certain interface. And like now, if you want to use Pro Tools native, you still need to have certain things and it's quite expensive and you have to really use subscription. And once you are in that ecosystem and you, you re- you've been using it for a while, I think it's hard to admit that it's maybe not, it might not be the best thing. Right. It's like so, in IT, the concept of vendor lock-in. Like you've put invested so much into the system and it's frustrating you to know in, but it's like, well, I guess like with you, for example, if you were to switch to Reaper today, a Reaper may be the best DAW on the planet, but you would ultimately end up losing time and money because of having to retrain yourself. Yes, <laughs> so that's the only reason why I haven't tried it. Yeah, that are are locked into using Pro Tools. I think that what's happening is kind of like how people that had analog and tape studios back in the day probably got really ticked off at people who started doing music and computers at all. And then now the people who have been using Pro Tools since day one are in the same position as those old studio owners of being ticked off at other people because they were able to get in and start doing the same thing for less money. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But I, I also still, I also really think that it's kind of changing already. And a lot of the professionals, as you said, like Michael Agent, but others too, are using different DOS. Cubase is pretty popular. Logic is popular for some things. Um, in the electronic world, Ableton is really dominating and... Um, it's. I don't think that Pro Tools is as much of a standard as it was, and I. St- I think Reaper has its place. So yeah, it might still be that 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 perception might still be a thing, but I. Th- I don't think it's that much of a thing anymore. And I. I also think that musicians don't care as much anymore. There used to be a time where musicians going into the studio wanted to see certain gear or certain software, and if you didn't have Which Pro Tools, weird you weren't to considered pro. Totally, that it's a red flag. Honestly, whenever whenever people request a quote and they or they talk about a project with me and their first question is what gear do you use for this and that and what software do you use that's actually a red flag and that's like I immediately question whether I want to work with that person or not because those are always the pain in the ass clients true and I think that that also comes from this being a social media age and they want to I mean I kind of get the idea of wanting to have the vibe and the aesthetic of a proper studio with all that gear so you can take pictures of for your socials and stuff but on the flip side it's like do you not just care about the final product? That's like when I was talking yeah. earlier about trying to dictate to a carpenter what tools he or she has to use. If I hired you to build a house, it's because I don't know how to do it. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. why should I tell you what tools to use and and you know yeah. want to micromanage all your steps? Yeah, um, well, that's I, I changing already. I think on the the whole concept of being pro as well. One thing mm-hmm. that that some people are a little bit nervous about with Reaper is the fact that. The, I mean, do you, do you know much about the developers? Uh, no, I, I know a little bit about like I've, I've obviously listened to podcasts and, and yeah, well, but the, not not really. There's not really a company. It's Justin Frankel yes. and and yeah, Schwab, who's a, a John Schwartz. Um, to my understanding, there is a contingency plan in case something bad were to happen. And as far as support, you can email support or you can get on the forums. There, there's not like a phone number that you can call, and that scares some people. Uh, but I would want to counter that with: Have you ever called Microsoft? <laughs> they've been <laughs> they they they've they've called me or at least they're the fake Indian call center guys claiming to be my from Microsoft, <laughs> but I have never called them. Well, there's no. there's lots of big companies that have a huge support team that offer terrible support. Yes, um, I've never had to deal with Avid support, so I don't know if they're good or bad. But just based on the cursing, like I've learned all sorts of profanity being around studios using Pro Tools, I'm going to guess that support is not that good. <laughs> yeah, same with this, with, Pro, uh, with Cubase. To be honest, I love Cubase, and whenever I got a reply from them, they it was helpful, but it can take them weeks or sometimes months to reply to any. So I don't even bother asking support Steinberg support. So well, what's weird yeah. about Reaper is is the uh, the community is like a bunch of rabid wolverines, um, <laughs> and <laughs> 
they, they are quick to tell you. I've said it before, but Reaper users are like vegans in that you know they're Reaper users. They they'll they'll tell you, <laughs> and but they're also some of the most helpful people uh, that I've come across. It's no, I won't. Don't get me wrong. You still have opportunity to be berated and be told to read the manual, but by and large, the community is very helpful. And I've been in situations where I had a client in studio and would come across something that needed to be done. Like I have never done this before, and I'm not sure. So I'll hop on a, on either my own Discord server or just hop on the forum and post a question. Make some coffee. Give the client some coffee. Let's sit and talk for a minute. And five minutes later, there's my answer. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. <laughs> to me is is better than sitting in a calling queue. Now, sometimes it's great to have proper professional support, but mm. I feel comfortable using the community for support with this. Yeah, yeah, to- yeah totally. So, totally. I, mean, I guess I can understand from a from a studio perspective, someone being nervous about not having true mm. support. But again, when I mean, how many times have you had a uh, plugin not work because of an iLock problem, and what kind of support did you get for that? How many times yeah. has Pro Tools crashed on you in the middle of a session with a high-profile prof- client? And what kind of support did you get for that? Yes, <laughs> so, exactly. 100%. So all things 100%. being equal, I'd rather pay 60 bucks for crappy support than a subscription. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Cool, thank you. Um, next question. Are you all in the box, or do you work with Analog Upboard? I think it depends on how you... Uh, how you view it. I would say I'm all in the box, but to my left, I do have a cheap tube preamp that I use for my overheads on my drums. Uh, I'm using it in a bit of an oddball way, though. My audio interface is a Roland Studio Capture, which Mm -hmm. has got 16 inputs, but only 12 XLRs. Uh, I'm using that cheap tube preamp to convert two XLRs over to quarter inch so I can plug it into the studio capture. Into the line input. It does add a little bit of color, but I mean, I can't say I'm actually using it for that. Yeah, it's totally fine. I mean, the the studio capture has additional line inputs that you want to use, so you need to, more mic pre's. For right. That, right? I absolutely yeah. love that interface. The, the The only negative I have to say about it is the only way to expand it is to buy another one. Like I can't add anything okay. to it with ADAT. Uh, no ADAT. Oh, okay. But I would gladly buy another one of these if I actually needed it. I want it. I've got the money for it, but I can't justify it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it, it has the automatic gain thing, right? Yes. That, uh, when the I new audience interfaces have to right. Make. When I go to track my drums, it's usually just me. Um, have you seen either mine or anybody else's videos on the web interface for Reaper? No. No, I haven't. Uh, Reaper I haven't has actually. a has a web a web server built in. And on my local network, I can get on my phone and go to rc.reaper.fm. It'll find my computer, and I can choose to either show the mixer where I can control it from my cell phone, or I can create, uh, this is the cool part, I've got a headphone amp back there that's routed from one of the outputs on my interface, and I can create a headphone mix and mix my own headphone mix from my cell phone independent of the main mix while I'm sitting back there on the drums. But back there, I can click a button in my remote session to the computer and gain stage myself just by hitting awesome. auto sense and playing for a few seconds. And that's done. That's totally awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's totally awesome. I love that feature. The new audience interfaces have that too. And I think it's brilliant. Well, I'm curious um, so, about that because I, I do, part of me wants to buy one even though I don't need, that's the bad part of gear acquisition syndrome. I don't really need anything, but I want stuff. I want to yeah. try the Audient product and I know that that can be expanded by ADAT, but I am 99% sure that if I expand it through ADAT, that that auto gain stage function is not going to work on downstream equipment unless yep, Audient sure. comes up with their own that somehow ties into it. If that's the case, um, of course, you're still stuck in their ecosystem, so I'm better off just buying another Roland Studio Capture unless the audience has some kind of other magical feature that I can't live without. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. I haven't thought of that, but yeah, you're totally right. There's no way you could do that over ADAT. That would only work for the audience uh, inputs on the thing itself. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, 
still great great thing and uh, the Roland one. looks great too yeah totally <laughs> me too <laughs> it's great yeah um okay so in the uh, do you are you in the uh, other than the preamps but are you when you mix in the box because you just didn't like you can justify or didn't want analog equipment is it more convenient or do you actually believe that uh, DAWs are just as good sounding or even better sounding I, I can't really give an educated answer on that since I've not mm -hmm. really worked with the analog equipment I know that there's there are those that would swear that it's that it's better to use the analog gear and in a lot of respects just thinking about it from a technical perspective I can understand how like just the way that that saturation happens because it's not going to be the exact same thing every time you can get some interesting colors and, and flavors out of analog gear that you can't necessarily get in the box But from a usability perspective, if let's say I had an 1176 in the rack right here, I, I don't know if those are stereo or mono, but I, I, let's assume it's... it's 1176 or mono. Okay, so the 1178 I, is stereo. Okay, so I can run yeah. one thing through that. Or I yes. can buy this plug-in that may not sound just like an 1176, but it does it good enough and I can run 100 tracks through it. Yeah, so. and the thing is, no two 1176s sound the same. So it's just, to me, the plug-in is just another unit of 1176 because if I compare two real ones, they sound totally different too. Right. So, yeah. so it's, yeah, I totally I'd like to, right. I do want to try some outboard gear just so I can hear for myself. Yeah. Like I've been kicking around the idea of buying a few hardware compressors for a while. Yeah. But it's another one of those things to where I can't really justify the cost. It's not like I'm running people in and out of the studio every day, and it yeah. would probably never pay for itself just to have an expensive yeah. experiment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to be really honest, I, I have a lot of really high-end, not a lot of anymore, but some really high-end pieces of analog gear, and I've done comparisons, and I can't say that it's it's definitely better. It's different sometimes, and I, I, I only have it because I enjoy it, to be honest. I just It's fun to me to use it, and, it's, and it, it inspires me, but I it would be wrong to say that it's clearly better in an A-B test. It's not. It's different, right. but not better. And yeah. I think from a client perspective, I mean, there are those who want to see that kind of stuff in, in the studio, but if you were to give them an A-B comparison of, of something you've produced and you used a software variant versus hardware on, on one or the other, I mean... I doubt they're going to be able to accurately predict which one was hardware. Now, granted, they've got a 50-50 shot, so they've got a pretty good chance of picking the right one, but I guarantee yeah. it's by accident. <laughs> De definitely, definitely. And I, I don't think that it's going to introduce enough of a difference to where you can justify your cost or justify charging somebody more for that. So, yes. yeah, totally. I could be wrong. Which, yeah, yeah. Which leads me to the next question of Torsten here, which is, um, do you think... It's better to have all the options, which we have in DAWs, or is it better to limit yourself? Like, what's better for the music? Is is a DAW with all the technical possibilities better for the music, or is it better to have limitations because that leads to unique things? Like, are the possibilities distracting from the song itself? That is a is very it? good question, and one that doesn't have an exact answer. Um, I think that mm -hmm. somewhere between those options is the truth. I like having a million options, but I like forcing myself to be limited. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. having unlimited options means that well let me let me think about it like this um i'm sure you're familiar with line six i have a love-hate yeah. relationship i hate line six <laughs> <laughs> uh, and i remember when i had i remember when i had uh line six amps or pods or things like that and now i mean I, i've dumbed down my guitar gear significantly i've got one amp and it's a boss katana which is a glorified line six that sounds good But yeah. uh, I went tube amps exclusively for a long time. And I think that with Line 6, you've got a billion options and you get to this weird point. And I think the same is true of a Kemper or um, Axe Effects, things like that. You can get some amazing sounds out of it. But the problem is in the back of your mind, you're always like, I can do this better. So you find yourself tweaking, in, not like, like drug user tweaking, but like tweaking knobs yeah. and stuff 
endlessly. And I got to a point to where I found that I was doing much more tweaking than I was actually playing guitar. So I think that you get that way with all the options in DAWs. And I'm at this point to where I have learned to love channel strips. For the longest time, I didn't understand why people like them. And I found that having a limited set of options, I work faster and just make decisions and move on instead of, well, I could do this or I could do this and trying a billion different options. Yes, you may come Mm -hmm. up with some pretty cool stuff doing that. But at the end of the day, your plugins are mainly designed to fix problems. Uh, There's some that are designed to fix and address specific problems and others that are designed to introduce different colors or, or flavors or whatever you want to call it, creative elements. And I've begun to approach my workflow with a limited scope and just use what's necessary to fix problems. And once I've got the thing sounding good, then I can spend a little bit more time tweaking with endless options, but definitely not on the front end because, well, I guess case in point, if you think about top-down mixing, I've come to very much appreciate that idea because I can treat the drums as one instrument or I can spend six hours working just on a snare and solo only to find out that it still sounds like crap in the mix. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, thank you for that answer. Great. Um, Next thing, guitars or bass first? This question is like a... Uh, an ongoing thing in our community too and a thing between my co-host Malcolm and I but he can't be here today by the way he's shooting some I don't know exactly what he's doing he's doing a lot of film audio stuff so he's probably on some Netflix show or whatever oh, well. um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he's doing like location sound and he can he always he, he can't talk about the projects he's doing and I always get to he always gets to talk about it after the fact so I don't <laughs> exactly know what he's doing right now but he can't be here but the thing is he says he does the I guess more traditional thing of like when he does overdubs he does bass like drums first then bass then guitars I I'm a big believer in doing not every time but most of the time doing rhythm guitars first and then bass because to me it's easier to spot tuning problems and to me most rock songs or most songs that I work on are written on the guitar and it just often makes sense to get that down first and then record the bass. But I know most people do bass first. So anyway, what's your I think I'm backwards on that? on that. I actually like to record rhythm guitars first, but not permanent. I just need to get the guitarist in to record scratch yes. tracks. That helps me to lay oh, out okay. my project and label all the different sections. I've got a Great. tool that I use in Reaper that uh, a developer named uh, X-Rame, his, his real name's Raymond something or other, but that's the other thing with Reaper is there's lots of community-built uh, plugins or extensions, whatever you want to call it. And this is one that he just calls region clock. What that does is, since I've got these two monitors, I'll put region clock up on this other monitor. Since my drums are in the same room, but way back on, on the opposite opposite side, it gives a visual representation as to what section of the song you're in and which section is coming up. So if I can get the guitarist to come in first and help me to map out the project to where I kind of know how the song's going to go and have all the regions mapped. Then the drummer can come in, have the scratch guitar as a point of reference, but also see on the screen across from him which part of the song they're on. Then I can get the drums tightened up and then bring in either the bass player or the guitarist. I usually like to do the bass player after the drummer so they can make sure that the bass and the kick are locked in. Um, but sometimes I'll bring the guitarist back in to go ahead and redo his scratch tracks and tighten those up. I don't care how tight he gets it the first time because it's literally just for reference because there's okay. nothing worse than a drummer having nothing but a metronome to record to. Yes, yes. <laughs> and yes, there, there's no definitely. good answer, though, because it's like everybody needs to hear something mm. to keep their place. So yeah, as long as you pick something other than the drummer first, you're usually in pretty good shape. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Awesome. Thank you. So now we get to the final batch of questions, which are all really quick ones. Not, nothing too, too in-depth You say here. that. I've been going kind of long on these. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. These are, I mean, who knows? So... <laughs> Um, how would a meeting with Kenny Joya, John Tidy, and you look like? And will the universe be the same after that collision of the giants? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, 
I think that it would probably be about like this, just a, a few guys just talking shop and trading stories. I mean, I, I talk with John pretty frequently. I've ne- never uh-huh. spoken with uh, with Kenny outside of just like private messages and stuff. But mm-hmm. I mean, John, John and I are friends and John actually taught me how to edit drums. I just beat him to the punch awesome. in making the chorus. Um, I think I talk about that in the drum editing course, but I first learned how to edit drums by hiring John to edit some drums for me and film it. I wanted to learn how to do it, and I uh-huh. had recorded a drummer in the band that I was in at the time. It was my first time recording a band, and just wanted to learn how to do it right. <laughs> so awesome! I've taken his methods great. and modified them slightly, and managed to sell it. <laughs> so awesome! Great, great. So the universe will likely be exactly the same. <laughs> I think that, that, that if we were to come together, it would be a, about like the Hadron Collider being fired, and it would probably create something <laughs> catastrophic, but we wouldn't remember it, and it would be like the Mandela effect. And the next day, nobody even has a clue who we are. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Thank you. Perfect, perfect answer. And Reaper's um, new name is Pro Tools. It's Pro <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, Rolling Stones or Beatles? Rolling Stones. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, that Dave was an Grohl easy one. Or, okay. <laughs> the next one is, is also interesting. I've never had thought about that pair, but like Dave Grohl or John Bonham? Hmm. That's a tough call to make um, because they have similar styles, actually. I mean, D- Dave, I think, yeah. is probably a bit more energetic, but he definitely has a rawness to his, his playing that I really appreciate. The same is true of John Bonham. So I'm going to... I'm going to make up my own answer for this one and say they're baby. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect answer. Perfect answer. Awesome. The Simpsons or Futurama? Ooh, dang. Futurama. The, the, symptom, the symptoms. <laughs> the symptoms. <laughs> the the symptoms. Okay, that's, that's your answer. That. That. You said they're baby. Now the answer to this is the symptoms. <laughs> yeah. I would have to say the Simpsons on that. I, I like both shows, but I find it interesting how the predictions that are made in the Simpsons are accurate. Oh, yeah. That's that's really that's creepy sometimes actually, but like yeah. I think that maybe Believe. Matt Groening is a time traveler, or maybe he's responsible for the Hadron Collider. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's, it's it's insane sometimes. Even the even the the background and the scenes is right. like exactly what happens later in a photo or something. It's crazy. It's like way. Nostradamus yeah. resurrected or yeah, something. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Thank you. And final question: um, What future improvements would you like to be implemented into Reaper? What's already what's still missing despite it having so many features? Hmm. I think that I would like to see an easier method for routing. Uh, I mean, routing is pretty much easy. Like if I want to create a bus out of my drum tracks, I've got a a hotkey bound to where I just highlight all of my drum tracks and I press a key and it creates a folder track, which in Reaper is a bus. It routes all the audio through that folder track. But sometimes I want to create a bus that's not a folder just so I can place all my Mm -hmm. buses in one place. I found that I can easily route all the tracks that I want to to the desired track but then it takes me an extra step to take them out of the master instead of being able to mm-hmm. do that all in one shot. So there, there's just a few things in routing that are not quite as intuitive or the, the way that it's displayed on screen makes it seem a little bit more complicated than it probably should be. I would definitely mm-hmm. like to see some of the defaults changed with regards to the folder structure like we talked about before with the mm-hmm. organization of projects. Mm-hmm. And that causes a lot of newcomers to lose data really fast because everything, like if they happen to choose the desktop as their target space for recording, all of a sudden, they've got a billion files cluttering their desktop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, Outside that makes sense. of that, I think about the only thing that I could think of right off the top of my head is I really wish that the graphics were SVG files instead of PNGs. That way, mm-hmm. they are infinitely scalable, even at uh, incremental percentages. So, like right now, okay. Reaper mm-hmm. is great at 100 percent, or 150, or 200 percent. But if you like to use 120 or 125 or 101, mm-hmm. you're just kind of out of luck. 
<laughs> oh, okay, okay, cool. I had no idea. Okay, cool. Thank you. I want to say thank you too to um, to Torsten and Wayne for all these amazing questions. Torsten is in a band called Love 40 Down from Germany. They are a punk band. They are super amazing. And Wayne is from the UK. He's a mixer. And uh, I think his website is waynecolsonmixing.com. So you can look him up too if you're listening to this. Um, thank you for submitting all these questions. And both are Reaper users, obviously. <laughs> so... Yeah, and thank you, Mike, for, for answering these questions. It's been way longer than I thought this would be. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> so, no, 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 no. It's not weird. Because it's of you, like not I don't be- like talking, but at the same time, I'm long-winded. Not because of you, but because of, yeah, we had so many things to talk about, which is amazing. And I'm, I'm very uh, grateful that you took the time to actually do that. So where can f- people find you and where do you want to... Um, yeah, where should we send people? Because there will be show notes um, for this episode and I'm going to put all of your stuff in there, like the, the, the editing course, your website, if you have one, the YouTube channel, like where should we I'm pretty easy to? to be found. If you go to letstalkaboutreaper.com, that will take you to the YouTube channel because I'm too lazy to build a website. <laughs> awesome. Okay, we'll do that and then we'll put that in the show notes. And your editing course can be found at promixacademy.com that is um, correct and if any uh, now as far as the discord server if anybody would like to, to oh, yeah. take part mm-hmm. in that on any of my videos over the past year there'll be a link in the description to join us on discord awesome. and if anyone wants to follow me personally for whatever reason and see pictures of my dog and family you can find me on facebook under my actual name perfect <laughs> awesome do you, you have instagram as well i have one i don't use it very often i gotta look it up real okay. quick because I, I don't remember <laughs> what name i go by there it's probably my own name i've always just gone by my name yeah is, how do cool. i even i don't even know how to work instagram okay it's mike.robinson <laughs> on instagram perfect. <laughs> i'm gonna put all of these things in the show notes and then you can go wherever you want but i think the youtube channel is the first thing people should check out because it's so insanely valuable helpful spot on like as you said like short videos but yeah information packed and and also relaxed i like the company like honestly dude like the the thing you do so well that I found pretty fascinating when I was watching the videos was that you, the videos weren't long. There's anything, everything you need in a 10 minute video and it doesn't feel rushed and it's just relaxed and chill, but still get all the information. That is what I found fascinating and what I really liked about those videos. Yeah, I hope to keep it that way because it's like, uh, I love the short videos, but at the same time, I hope to get to a point to where I can eventually quit the day job and find a way to use the creative to make at least the same amount that I'm making now. But short videos does not do well for monetized channels. But even Mm -hmm. when I try to make make myself make a long video, I have a hard time stretching something past 10 minutes because it's like when I'm looking for something on YouTube, Mm. uh, in some respects I like the long videos, but sometimes like can you just get to the point and if you start one more video with it's your boy, I will stop watching. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. All right. Thank you again for taking the time to do this, Mike. Hey, thank you for uh, having me. You have managed to keep me out of the sun because I was supposed to cut grass today. (laughs) And I didn't want to. I hope that's okay. Uh, It'll still be there tomorrow. This is edit this out if you need to, but I wish my grass were emo so it would cut itself. (laughs) That's a great way to end this episode. (laughs) I just got myself kicked off the internet. No, no, that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. All right. Thank you, man. Um, and I hope we'll, yeah, hope to talk to you soon. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you know how the the community uh, likes this episode. I think they will be, they will be stoked. It's one of the the best ones so far. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh, and if uh, if you get really bored, uh, check out John Matthews on YouTube. He he's mm-hmm. a German producer, but he goes goes by the name Toucan Studios. But his YouTube channel is John Matthews. I did a guest okay. spot on his channel earlier this week, introducing a new plugin that he's created. 
Oh wow! And I haven't heard of him. Let's let me see. There's a, there's a chat thing in here, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Let me send you a link real quick. I found it hilarious because um, I got to say some things that I probably shouldn't on that video. <laughs> He had messaged still me. still on the episode, by the way. I just leave that in, right? Oh, sure. If, if you want to, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, but he he had messaged me because English is not his native language, and he wanted to make sure. He was explaining to me how in German they use a term to explain this sound that he wants to remove as nose or nosy. Oh, and, yeah. And I explained that here, nosy means something completely different. It's like mean like an adjective to explain somebody who always has their nose in somebody else's business, which, of course, led to, well, what do you call it there? And okay. that's when things got weird because here, that sound they would call honky, but also yeah. honky is derogatory. <laughs> so I did this video for him, and there's a lot of geese in it and lots of uh, goose sound effects and honks, but it made for a pretty interesting video. <laughs> Very great. I'm going to check that out too. I'm going to put it in the show notes. That's super awesome. Uh, but don't you don't you call sounds like this also like nasal sounding or something? Isn't well, that my, a word? Well, my wife, the wordsmith, uh, said, why don't you just say nasal? And after that, I was like, yeah, you're probably right. Okay. But, <laughs> but also nasally, you know, I would use that to describe the sound in, in terms of singing. But mm-hmm. that same noise oh, yeah. on guitars, people usually just call it a honking sound. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. That's a, that's fascinating. I never thought about that, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, but <laughs> no, anybody that used to any. watch like '70s sitcoms in America, they probably got a kick of honky getting bleeped out every few seconds. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, cool. All right, uh, thanks again, and hopefully we'll we'll talk again soon someday. <laughs> Thank you. Oh wow, do you see that moving in the background? That's if, a dog, if I'm right? still, we got to see Bell before I go. Come here, girl. Hey, Bell. Yeah, Bell, where'd you go? Yeah, show show, show us the dog. Bell dog. There she no comes. Worries. Come here, girl. Wait, where are you? She's beautiful. Oh, there she is. Hey, girl. <laughs> Bell dog. Give me five, kid. Wait, I can't work this camera upside down. She's not cooperating. <laughs> but she's. A, well, I, I've seen her. She's, she's, she's beautiful. Thank you. She is a large one. <laughs> yeah, she is. Well, awesome. Speaking of, I guess I got to take her out now. You ready to go outside, girl? Yeah. All right. So, bye, Mike. Right, thank you. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Hey friend, thanks again for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this one, just know that this is just a tiny fraction, a small taste of what we can actually do to help you completely transform your recordings and mixes forever. If you are really serious about your music, if you want to reach your goals as a self-recording artist, then please apply now for the Self-Recording Syndicate, our coaching program that takes you from where you are to being able to completely independently produce and release exciting sounding music forever. If you join that program, you're going to be part of a very, very passionate, dedicated, committed group of self-recording artists from all around the world. And you're going to get a roadmap, guidance, feedback, personal access to me and the team. We're going to do everything, literally everything we can to help you make the best recordings you can possibly make. And it all starts with a free first call, completely free, no strings attached. Best case scenario, we're going to end up working together and we're going to completely transform the way your music sounds. Worst case scenario, you're going to get an hour of free coaching and an action plan that you can then take and implement on your own. So if that sounds interesting to you, get started now with your first completely free call by going to theselfrecordingband.com slash call or just click the link in the show notes. See you next week.